Welcome to another episode of Renegade Detroit Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon and skeptic. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? RDI is this local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations throughout Metro Detroit. This group's about networking and doing deals. This isn't your grandma's Rhea, folks. No sales from the front, ever, and no smell of stale coffee, been gay, and or disappointment. You know what I'm talking about. RDI is also this podcast where once a week I sit down with interesting and successful business people getting shit done, and I pick their brain for your entertainment and hopefully education. And if you enjoy this podcast, give it a like, share it across the internet, rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, all that. That all does really help. This is a free podcast, and uh, I'm not doing this to be listened to by 40 people. So if you like it and you enjoy it, give it a like, share it, and rate it on iTunes. I really appreciate it, and it really does help. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, go ahead and hit me up at renegadedetroit.com, renegadedetroit.com. If you're interested in the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash renegadedetroitinvestors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. You can hit me up on Twitter at Jeremy Burgess. And if I ever get around to editing these videos and getting on YouTube, which I will at some point, you can go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. Legal disclaimer. Hey, man, it's the world we live in. Don't bitch about it. In no way, shape, or form should anything that I and or my guests say be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment and or investment decisions that you contact a lawyer and or other licensed professionals. Put on your big boy and big girl pants. Don't fucking sue me. Be an adult. All right. Show quote of the week. Time for the Renegade Detroit Investor Show Quote of the week. I try and pick a quote that sets tone for the podcast and hopefully for your week and hopefully resonates with my guest too. So I hope I did okay by you, Jeremy. Here we go. A ship is always safe at the shore, but that is not what it is built for. Albert Einstein. A ship is always safe at the shore, but that is not what it is built for. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to my guest, Mr. Jeremy Cronin. Born 1972 in the UK, grew up in Israel from the age of five. He was a captain in the Israeli Air Force, and he did make a note here. He is not a pilot. Captain is a rank, not just a, uh, it's not just a job. Got a bachelor's of science in industrial engineering from Tel Aviv University. Had a uh, very interesting uh, work, pa- uh, work uh, what do you call Career. Career. Thank you. Saturday morning, folks. I'm sorry. Interesting career. Worked at a 100-employee startup. Uh, that didn't work out. And he currently works at a multi-billion dollar multinational company. Um, married 17 years, wife, two kids. He loves cars, loves driving. He's lived and worked all over the world at last uh, last seven years in the Netherlands. Currently lives in Cleveland, and why I have him on this podcast, besides he's my friend, um, he owns four single-family homes in Detroit, all of which he bought living in the Netherlands, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So currently has a credit score of a teenage high school dropout because, of course, uh, he's not an American citizen. He just moved to America, which, by the way, welcome, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming out, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. So we have... The what we call the, the the dodo bird of Detroit, the rare. Everybody says, "Where are these? All these international investors buying these houses? 
Or the question I get is, why would international investors buy houses in Detroit? Well, we're going to get to that, but we have you here right now. Although you know where I always start. Let's start at or near the beginning. You are an international man, it looks like. Uh, or I would say a worldly man, right? Maybe an international man, a worldly man. Grew up, lived everywhere. Yeah, it kind of uh, happened that way. Uh, I think it was uh, just my fortune that it started out with uh, parents who immigrated to Israel for, for Zionist reasons when I was of an age already when I could you know, recognize things and think about things. So to me, moving to a new country at the age of five was something that I I remember. And now I can relate to it maybe as things which were either good or bad. Both um, probably, right? Some pros and cons, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I... If I think, what if we might have stayed in England, I could perhaps imagine I might have become a racing driver or something. Uh, you know, I'm sure life That'd would have cool. taken a completely different path. It would have, right? Yep. So five years old, you're born and raised till you were age five in England. And then your parents decide to, I guess, head back to the Holy Land, right? And you say it was for Zionist reasons, so... With, I don't know. Explain that. I'm just okay, curious. Yeah, yeah. So basically the state of Israel was established in 1948 as a, as a homeland for Jewish people who uh, only recently back then were being seriously persecuted in, uh, in Nazi Germany. And, uh, and yeah, before that, uh, throughout the centuries, uh, in mostly in Europe where, where they were. And they ended up scattering all over the world, many of them out here in, uh, in the US as well. Um, but once the homeland was established, that became the place where... I mean, the prayers that Jews were making since they were evicted from Israel by the by the Romans back in, I think it was 73 AD or something like that, they, they were always praying for the return to Jerusalem and the Holy Land. Um, and so many Jewish people did make that move to, to immigrate to Israel and, uh, and to build that dream. And I mean, Israel in itself, it's incredible that a country which is so young, uh, established only in 1948, has come as far as it has. Lots of support from the U.S., of course, uh, financial and otherwise. Yes, I'm proud of that, too. I don't give a shit what this liberal, idiotic uh, people are saying right now. Not that I agree with everything Israel does, but I think we should support all democracies, Yeah, I mean, I think even the need, imperfect ones. Yeah, I mean, we need to avoid uh, – we can talk about politics, I'm sure, for this entire podcast. We're going to um, try and avoid it. Yeah, exactly. I have no intention of doing but that. But I always but, like to throw a little jab out there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have big reservations about what the current uh, government in Israel is doing or not, not doing alone. to try yeah. and make a better future i wouldn't right right now i don't think i would want my children to be growing up there uh because i don't think they would get the same values uh that they do growing up in uh well, past seven years in an international community in holland and now in the u.s uh i think they're doing better here i and i'm and we're going to go off on a huge tangent here and we'll end it so we don't end up being some political thing but that is one of the pros of moving around so much and living all over the world is I, I don't think of myself as American anymore. I just think of myself as human. And when you, I don't know, it was very interesting for me growing up, moving everywhere and living everywhere, especially across the Western world, some of Asia, but not much. Um, it, it's hard to think, I mean, at least it is for me, it's hard for me to think that I'm American just because my mother happened to squat me out here. I could have just as easily been you know, from Afghanistan or Iran or, or anything else. So to think of myself because of where my mother geographically birthed me, I think is an odd idea that at some point we have to maybe reluctantly, but at some point we have to, we're going to have to deal with it some way, shape or form. Right. Cause that is really the haves or have nots that that's what it comes down to. You know, this, this class bullshit is bullshit, but 
you have to acknowledge that it, it, you're very unlucky if you're born a woman in Afghanistan versus a woman anywhere in the Western world. And it has nothing to do with you. And it is just chance, a roll of the dice. So I think that's one of the benefits to growing up internationally is I don't, I don't think of myself as nationalistic anymore. I think of myself as human. Yeah, that's uh, and that's somewhere that's a barrier that I haven't yet decided if I've passed or not. Because my homeland, where I belong, is still Israel. You know, I still think that some point in the future, if I have to decide where I'm going to end up, it's probably going to be Israel, unless things get much worse than they are now. Um, God, I hope not. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty bad right now. Oh yeah, the poor Middle East. So that, that was interesting growing up everywhere, though, right? So yeah. So, so if, we, if we just continue on on Israel a minute, so you know, I, I've had interesting discussions with colleagues in in Europe, for example. You know, there are stereotypes about Jews, and many of them are quite correct. You know, often they tell me, "Oh yeah, you guys are good with money and business, aren't you?" And uh, yes, and I'd like to remind them why that is, because if you go back to the Middle Ages in Europe, uh, Jews were not allowed to own land. Yeah. When you're not allowed to own land, you have to find some other way to make a living. So if you're going to buy potatoes from the, from the Christian farmer in the next village, you're going to have to pay him with something. So uh, the Jews learned to, you know, deliver services if it was law or money and banking and finance and trade and, and all that. It was a necessity. That's what they had to do. And, you know, that kind of gets ingrained in, uh, in an entire nation. So what happened in, in my generation is that every Jewish mother and no matter where in the world you are, everyone knows that Jewish mothers, they want their kids to become lawyers and bankers and, and all that. They want them to go to university and get those degrees and because that's what ensures that they're going to have a job, there's something that's going to be needed in, uh, in society, uh, no matter what your situation is. That is one of the interesting things about um, Judaism, at least in recent modern history, and I'm sure even further, I'm not as familiar with it as you are, there is a heavy emphasis on education. Heavy emphasis and not just yeah. religious education, the whole thing. Yes, absolutely. Everything. What, what, you, what would be called, uh, I guess, more around the turn of the 20th century would be called liberal, a classic liberal education, right? Math, science, literature, everything. Heavy, heavy, heavy. Yeah, so, I mean, you still have these extreme ends of Judaism who rule these things out and are pretty much, you know, into the religion only. But uh, yes, uh, Judaism in its pure form, I think. Uh, does encourage to learn to become wise, uh, you know, to, to recognize the other point of view, to be able to conduct a debate, an intelligent debate, and perhaps be convinced uh, of an argument which is uh, opposing to your views. It might also have something to do with surviving through. I mean, quite frankly, the Jews weren't really welcome anywhere, not just the West, but the East too, right? It was you kind of sandwich in between. It depends in which period. Yeah. You know, I mean, I can remember I, I visited Jordan. Uh, still on my British passport back in 1994 when it was already known that there were peace negotiations between Israel and Jordan, but uh, but it wasn't there yet. So Israelis couldn't yet travel officially to Jordan. And uh, I spent some time there. I was, I was uh, you know, wandering around downtown Amman for four days with a Palestinian who'd from uh, Ramallah who'd been studying in Egypt and was waiting for permission to get back. And he didn't know I was Israeli, he thought I was British. And, uh, and you know, I was meeting Jordanians there and and, you know, they know that there's this peace process coming. Um, and what was interesting to all of them was they were looking at the business opportunity. They were saying, hey, yeah, I'm going to get Israelis coming over to stay in my hotel and I'm going to get Russian girls from, you know, it's just Russia just uh, opened up uh, over there to, to play host to all the Saudi sheikhs who are going to come here. It's going to be a wonderful business thing. That's what people were thinking about. And and very often business does take precedence over all those other prejudices or things that are going on. And that's what happened for much of history, except when... Uh, 
When it didn't. bad thing, when yeah. it didn't. For the times it didn't. Yeah. And for those times that it didn't, that's what Israel is there for. Yeah. Because whenever something's going bad for the Jews anywhere in the world, that's the place that's for them. And that's a place that Israelis will protect with everything they've got. And that's the reason that uh, Israelis who are not living in Israel, when a war breaks out, they're coming back to Israel. They're showing solidarity. It's the reason when, under the Second Lebanon War, I think this was 2007, uh, I was working at a factory which was in range of rockets which were being fired over from uh, from Lebanon. A couple of them landed within, you know, a few hundred feet of our factory. Um, and people were given the right to, you know, to go home, to take care of the families, to move them away from the border zone to, to safer areas. Most people carried on coming to work. Uh all the windows, all the outside offices uh, which were in danger were, were shut down and everyone moved into the big, the production floor was set out as a big open space uh, with offices and they set up all the wiring for everyone and they had a couple of hundred people working there in the middle of the production floor and the, and the factory was still working all this time and the fact was that in the five weeks of that war, productivity was higher than it had ever been. So these wars, you know, it's, it's unfortunate but these wars and difficult <laughs> situations, they're what really bring the people together. It is interesting how adversity... For, for some people anyway, right, does that grittiness that they talk about, that adversity and grittiness does tend to bring out the best in some people. I know it does for me. I'm, I'm a better man for having done some stupid shit and lived through some tough things. And a lot of times you do come out on the other side grittier and, and just, just a touch stronger than you were before. Yeah, that's, that's been my uh, observation. That's not very scientific, you know? Yeah, I've read some interesting stuff about that. You know, they say there's a big saying in Hebrew, and I guess it exists in others as well, that, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. To a certain extent. And right? and exactly, that's disputable because, yeah. I mean, if if you're in a difficult situation and, uh, and, you know, the people who are weaker don't get through it, and it's the survivors who get to tell the story, and yeah. the survivors were stronger from the start. So did the difficult situation actually make you stronger? No, you survived it because you were stronger from the start. Both too, though. There, there's, uh, that's nature nurture. It's probably both. But that is one of the interesting things about adversity is for some people, that's why I say for some people, for some people it ruins them, right? They're just never the same. Maybe they don't make it. But for others, you know, all the work, the, some of the people, that, the, the endurance athletes and some of the people that really push what humans can do, you have to torture yourself to, to get to the, or like UFC fighters, you know, they have to literally torture themselves physically to be in the best shape of their lives. And they can actually only do it for a period of time without breaking down. That's why they stay in decent shape most of the time, but then they have to ramp up two or three months before a fight, mm-hmm. kind of like putting an edge on a knife. But if you go too far, you take the edge off the knife too. So it's, it is an interesting thing. I think, I don't know what, well, for me, growing up everywhere was like that too. Having to make new friends everywhere, new schools, new cultures. You have to go the extra mile. I think it's why I can get along with just about anybody, even if we're diametrically opposed or have different opinions. I can. I have a tendency to be able to. It may not seem like it if you follow me on Facebook, but in real life, not Facebook life, I can get along with most people most of the time. I think it has a lot to do do with that. So. What was it like at five years old moving from England to Israel with your parents? Well, my memories from there are less uh, clear. I mean, I can remember just, you know, small things like uh, at school having everyone gathering around, you know, asking me to count to 10 in English and and things like that. So you might get to be the center of attention. Um, uh, I knew a bit of Hebrew from before that because my father was teaching Hebrew uh, to a basic extent. There was just a few words. 
Um, it's okay. You were only yeah. five. <laughs> um, I, I know that's. I don't really have that much. Uh, I think memories from there, but uh, yeah, the differences came about later. I think when when I started actually as a grown up, uh, moving to other countries and then starting to put things in perspective and and see things. Um, one thing I just wanted uh, to to mention, just going back to okay. what you yeah. said about survivors and and the strong Absolutely. and yeah. so on. I think Israel and and also very much America. Uh, were built by by the strong, hardy, hardy folk. Yeah, I mean, people who upped and left uh, Ireland at the time of the famine or uh, Europe, Central Europe, in hard times, and and made their way to America. They had to get up their family, uh, you know, take everything they had or that they didn't have, and and you know, make a big journey to get somewhere new. And over there, they had to be pioneering and get through hardships. So that those who survived that and actually made it, they're the ones who built uh, these nations. So I have a soft spot for um, pioneers and uh, most refugees. Do you think what ta- not only how difficult it is to leave everything, but not only leave everything, but somehow make it and start over? It, it's a difficult thing to imagine doing if you if you haven't done it. Imagine being born somewhere, not having any control, and everything you know comes to an end. Life becomes so dangerous and difficult that you risk everything. You get on a shitty boat. You get on a raft. And this is not political because I I don't want whatever. I mean, I just want you to imagine what this is like with nothing, probably, quite frankly, depending on where you're at in the world, with little to no education. You can't even speak the language. And then you have someone like Gary Vaynerchuk, right, whose um, Russian father, I think Russian Jewish father, too, came over and look at him now, multi-million millionaire, his family, and and one generation, normally it's three generations, one generation went all the way to, didn't know how to speak English. I mean, it's crazy. Like, how could you participate in an economy when you can't even speak or write the language? And and they do. I've always been amazed by those people. And then the sad fact is a lot of those people don't make it. They don't make it on the raft. They don't make it in society. They It takes two or three generations. And some of those generations never make it. And that's the other side of the story, too. But Yeah, I think three generations is about right. Also, from my experience in Israel, I mean, you know, the... Israel is considered to be a very diverse society because the immigrants to Israel came from so many different origins. I mean, you know, the first waves of immigrants were from uh, Central Europe in the beginning of the 19th, sorry, the end of the 19th century. Um, and during the time of World War II, there's another big influx of uh, immigrants who were escaping Europe, those that could get in because the British weren't uh, exactly allowing Israelis or Jewish they into weren't. Israel at the time. They sent the ships back. I yep, that's, that's one of those terrible things you read about and you go, really? They sent them back? And yes, they. a lot of them did end up in gas chambers and terrible shit like that. They sent the ships back. Yep. But uh, after World War II, there was lots of immigration from, from the Arabian Peninsula and from Northern Africa. So this is a whole new culture coming in into a country which the establishment had already been started by, uh, by European Jews. So there was, you know, kind of a clash of cultures over there. But by now, we're now on the third generation after that happened. And those differences are, I wouldn't say they're completely gone, but they're going away. So, you know, when I was a kid there was still this differentiation. You knew who was the, the term in Israel is Ashkenazi and Sephardi. Sephardi means actually Spanish origin because the, the Jews of Northern Africa and Arabia, they came, they left Spain at the time of the Spanish Inquisition, 15th century. Uh, so their origins, origins were Spanish. 
uh, and the Ashkenazia from Central Europe. And, and, you know, everyone knew which kids are this and which kids are that. And there was some kind of status difference underlying there, no, no matter where you were. Today, at least I know within my social circle of people I know, most of the couples I know are mixed, including myself and my wife. And our kids, all the kids of ours, they can't say they're Sephardi or Ashkenazi. They're, they're not. They're a mix of everything. So you know, they're never going to be in that situation of making that differentiation. But despite that diversity in Israel, and I should say after you know, 1990 where, when Russia broke up, there were about 1 million immigrants uh, from Russia that came to Israel. There's 15% of the population. You know, you'd see That's huge. nuclear 15% scientists. 15% of the population. Oh, yeah. Think about that. And, and the Jewish uh, immigrants from Russia, many of them were very highly educated. They, they were professors and uh, you know, researchers and engineers and everything, doctors. And many of them could not get a job in Israel, uh, mainly because their degrees didn't count. So in, 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 in Russia, you'd have like an oil engineer and a bridge engineer and a hydraulic engineer and, uh, and things like that. And in Israel, you just had a civil engineer. And so their degree didn't count. And what you'd got was all these people with advanced degrees and, and very intelligent doing menial work, you know, cleaning the floors in the supermarket and, and stuff like that. And it, it took a long time. That happens in America too still, Oh, right? yeah. Oh, yeah. Gary Vaynerchuk's father was an engineer in Russia and came over. And by the way, yeah, that's bullshit. You can wipe your ass with it and go stock these shelves, right? And that's, that's what yep. happens sometimes. Yep. It's unfortunate. And, you know, the, the, the Russian immigrants are now, you know, for the most part, they're, they're making it. And after that, there came uh, an immigration wave from Ethiopia and they encounter, you know, the same difficulties over again. And it'll take them also, you know, two more generations uh, till they start integrating. The thing was, what I thought was diverse about Israel, when I started going international, then I found out how actually it wasn't really diverse. Because I, mean, I can give you one story, just an example. When I started working with the company I'm working now, uh, I got to do some international travel, working on global supply chain projects. Uh, so I was representing our factory in these uh, global programs. And uh, we got to go to a workshop in Mexico, Cancun. I was like all excited about this. It is a side note, but I would never go to Cancun personally as a vacation. It's uh, it's just like an extension of America with all those McDonald's and over there. America with better weather. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the beach, basically. And, and actually, you know, the beaches yeah. in Israel are better are than better. the beaches yeah. in Cancun as well. So Yeah, uh, but Cancun's closer to America than Israel. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but on, on my way back, I had a kind of complicated trip back. I was uh, stopped in Atlanta for five hours and 12 hours in Milan and, uh, and back, but five hours in Atlanta. I said, okay, you know, let's get out the plane and uh, go around and have a look. And uh, growing up in Israel back then, before the Ethiopian immigration, you didn't know anyone, any Negroes, African-Americans, or whatever you want to call it, politically correct or not. Uh, you, you just didn't have them in Israel. All you knew was what you saw on TV. And, you know, this is a time when MTV is already around and you're seeing, you know, gangster rap videos. And, and this is what's sitting in your mind uh, when you think about Negroes. And so I'm, I'm getting out of the transit to, in the center of Atlanta and walk, walking down the street. And, you know, there's this uh, big black guy walking down the street in front of me, dressed like these gangster rap guys with lots of uh, metal. And, and Welcome to urban culture. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, okay, I want to be on the other side of the street right now. And as I'm walking on and, you know, when he comes closer, I see he's walking hand in hand with his yeah. wife and he's got, you know, one, a one-year-old child on his shoulder, you know, um, kissing it and, and you discovered the lie. Most like, gangster rap is a lie. <laughs> exactly. yeah. and, that, and that was that realization moment that, Oh my God, you know, I've, I've been holding these, uh, ideas which are totally wrong. And that was, uh, 
that that was a realization for a wake-up call let's call it hey man I'm actually a bit racist here. Uh, <laughs> actually, I think it's prejudice, but maybe I don't prejudice know, maybe. is probably the word. Yeah. Well, they, well, they're doing their best to muddy the water on all these words so they can use them all the time. So even I'm not sure necessarily, but uh, yeah, that is an interesting thing. That that is the cool thing about growing up everywhere. Is I I mean I'm sure you, similar to you. I got I got to see just so many different cultures and so many different ways of living. Which I think was really good because that more than anything is what put the nail in nationalism for me. Enough years of that, it just nationalism kind of just it, for me it was like a, a a wall that I just quit repairing, and it just deteriorated to a point, and then at some point it just fell over, and I just no longer considered it at all anymore. Right? So I think you can say the same thing with ethnicity, sex, whatever. You know, you're born into it. People build it up. They tell you how important it is, and then the longer you live. If you just, it just, I don't know, it just kind of rode it away from me, disappeared slowly. It took a long time. I think I was like yeah. 26 or 27 before I was like, wait a second. Maybe this isn't the best country in the world. <laughs> America. I know I'm going to get hate for it. I still love the ideas of America. All right. But they're not American ideas. There's a difference, folks. They're just ideas. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, anyway, yeah, when it comes to this, you know, when I look at the opportunity that my kids had to, to go to an international school in Holland, there it was a truly international community. There were kids from India and China and Japan and the US and all religions, and they're all treated exactly as equals in the school. There's no status here or anything. Everyone come, comes from a different place and they've got a different story. And you've you got kids of international footballers, sorry, soccer players. And, uh, call and, it football. I don't know why we call our football football. I'm not going to get into that though. It's fine. And the kids of uh, CEOs of major companies. And at the same time, the kids of, you know, lowly programmers who are, who are doing their best to save up the money to put the kids in, in an international school where they can get, uh, get uh, a good education. And, and everyone is totally equal. So for my kids growing up in their formative years over there where, where they just, you know, it didn't make a difference, color or race or religion. And I'm really happy that they've had that opportunity and, and that they got to start out knowing that everyone's the same. Yeah, because um, we are, right? Or at least we should be the same under law, right? Nobody... Not just law. Yeah, I'd say we're all related. Obviously, we're not all exactly the same, but uh, not in any significant way, not in any way that, that would require us to treat somebody different, period, end of report. And that is the beautiful thing about an international community. I went to the American Overseas School at Rome, a truly international community. It was a school primarily for diplomats and their children, or the children of the diplomats, um, a lot of UN in Rome and all that, and that was a life-changing year, a life-changing year, literally a kaleidoscope of the world, and that experience, I, I don't think I would trade it for anything. I think I, I kind of have an idea. I wish I could have learned it younger instead of my, my sophomore year in high school. It is, it does change everything. I, it's really good that your, your children have that experience. I think that's going to benefit them way into the future in ways they probably don't even realize now. Yeah. You know? I'm sure of that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how much different was that from your education? Do you think? Well, I, all the time that I spent until, until I think I got discharged from the military, were pretty much uh, in in a safe environment. So my parents made the choice to go and live in a in a good town, and uh, I went to a good school, and um, and later, so, so I was always in an area where the people around me were all 
you know, educated and, and everything. Later in the army also, I went into a relatively elitist uh, thing. I mean, I started out in the pilots for a course. I didn't manage to complete the course. I got thrown out after a year. But uh, also that is very elitist and staying in the Air Force as an officer afterwards, it's all very elitist. So it's only after I left the army that I started being exposed to to the fact that there's, uh, you know, there are other types out there. So, yeah, not as smart. I can remember the realization I, I was doing my first job, uh, you know, I was trying to save up money to go and do a little trip around the world uh, after the army. And I was working in what at the time was the only 24-hour supermarket in Israel. And I was working nights there, loading up the shelves and all that. It was a relatively good salary for what you could do uh, with no education. And, uh, you know, on the breaks there, we'd be, you know, talking about things we wanted to do. And, uh, you know, me and another couple of the guys were talking about, yeah, yeah, we're going to get a motorbike and uh, we'll go riding and all this. And uh, it's great. And, you know, I mean, while I was doing my lessons and I got my license and, uh, and then one day I showed up at work on a motorbike. And this other guy who was going to get a motorbike, I saw him, he's standing there with his mouth gaping open and, and he says, you really went and did it. <laughs> uh, and that was the realization that, you know, to me, it seemed obvious. I mean, all the people I'd been around uh, with in, in the Air Force and in my school and, and the circle of friends of my family and, and everything like that, there were people who went out and did what they said they would do. You know, it's obvious. Um, Not and, so obvious, And now I'm suddenly discovering yeah. that there are people out there who, who aren't like that. And I'm seeing this now in, in the US more so than in Holland that I'm getting reminders about appointments or things that I need to do. So I'm being contacted before with a, you know, a few hours before, a day before saying, you remember you have an appointment tomorrow? And, and I, you know, I'm realizing, okay, they have to do that because there are obviously lots of people who don't keep their appointments. I, I do it every time. I didn't do it for you because I knew you would show up. And I don't do it for most of the people I have on my podcast because I know they're going to show up. But for every appointment I set, I call and confirm an hour before. You have to or you show up and there's nobody there. Mm-hmm. It's yep. uh, it's that's not it's not a good thing. That but that goes back more to the, just the lottery of life, right? It, if you're lucky enough to be born somewhere geographically where this is possible, and then yeah. you win the lottery again, you get decent parents who are really gonna you know invest a lot of time and money in you. Life is very different for you, and uh, yeah, very different. Yeah. And yeah. you know, I um, I think my parents it was uh, they definitely had the end in mind when they made the decision to, to live in this town where, where the cost of living was obviously more expensive. Uh, and you know, I'm going through the same thing now. I mean, we, we've moved to the U.S. and here, uh, you know, we couldn't afford an international school here. They're, they're quite a bit more. The, the international school in Holland was partially public funded, so we were actually just paying the extra. Um, so here we had to look for the place to live where the public schools are the highest quality. And we did our research, talked to people and found out. And we've chosen a, a city called Solon, uh, just on the southeast side of uh, Cleveland. It has an excellent school system. And, you know, so far we've been there three months and, you know, we're really happy. The kids are really happy. Uh, but it's more expensive to live there. The rent we're paying is a lot higher than it could have been elsewhere. The, uh, the house we're going to want to buy is going to be more expensive. The, the grocery stores around us are more expensive than the ones in the next town. And, uh, and it costs you. But, uh, here comes, I mean, there's another Hebrew saying, I mean, uh, or question. Yeah. You bring up to debate. Would you rather be ahead of a pack of wolves or would you rather be at the tail end of, uh, of a pride of lions? And I think it was one of your podcasts. I think one of your guests was mentioning a friend of his who, a teacher or something who was, who was teaching in some town a bit outside, uh, in the middle of nowhere. And he, and he owned the biggest house in town. Um, and that, that's being the head of a pack of wolves. Yeah. 
I would. I would not. I'd rather be the tail end of a of a pack of lions, quite yeah. frankly. Because yeah. then you have something to aspire to. You have yeah. uh, pride out there pulling you up. And uh, well, at least if I was a female lion, if I'm following this analogy, <laughs> being a male lion in this situation is not necessarily the best thing in the world, unless you're the toughest one. But I think your analogy still holds true for sure. Better to be. Well, yeah. I mean, especially since the way it's set up. Quite frankly, you have to do that to get a decent education because they're going to take a third of your money anyway. They're not going to give it back to you to go invest in your school of choice regardless. So if you want your kids to get a good education, you're going to have to go live in these places and, and pay more. And that's just what you're going to do. Or you got to make more money. Yep. So yeah. one of the two. Or maybe yeah. both, right? Maybe both. So thankfully, I've reached the point where I am earning enough money from my day job that, uh, that even without uh, any further income from, uh, from real estate, I can afford to, to live there, to put them in the school and uh, you know, still to take a holiday every year and hopefully some other stuff. Well, I'm definitely going to come back to that because I want to get more of your impressions of what it's like living in America as an outsider. Um, I shouldn't say outsider, as a newcomer. As a rel- oh, relative yeah, newcomer, you visited uh, lots of times. Yeah, about it's that, interesting, yeah. right? It's interesting. Yeah. So, and I'm interested in your opinion on that too. So, but but let's go back. Five years old, growing up in Israel, heavy emphasis on education. Um, did you know, or because you're kind of you're, you're kind of a slightly different. Uh, most people I have on are, and very entrepreneurial, right? And you're you're kind of like this middle ground where. You you want a good job and you want good benefits and you want to take care of your family and you want a good paying job and you want to save money, but you're not just happy with that. It's like you're hedging your bet or there's more you want to do. I don't know. Maybe I'm butchering this, but it's just it's yeah. a different perspective. And let's talk about it a little bit. Yeah, now I'm kind of middle ground. Six years ago, I was, I think you all despised the go get a job and have, and spend the rest of their life there. That's, yes. I, mean, I, I grew up in a family where it was pretty obvious that you're going to, you know, you're going to finish the school, you're going to go to university, you're going to get a degree, you're going to have a job and you'll sort yourself out. Um, there wasn't, I don't think there was much entrepreneurial in my family directly. Um, Pretty much everyone is in, you know, the, that regular straight like it have a job thing. And, you know, I'd like to talk a bit also about that corporate world. It's, oh, it's, yeah. It's not always the monster that you make it out to be. There's oh, no. some good no, no, things that, in there as well. I uh, think there's some great things in there, right? And, yeah, we can talk about that some. Uh, but until, yeah, until about six years ago, it was pretty obvious to me I wasn't looking for anything else. It was kind of, yeah, I was relying on the fact that I'm going to have a pension and, uh, and healthcare and all that. And uh, I think it was a friend of mine, actually, you know, the, the person who, I met you via, this is Barack, Barack uh, yeah. Postel, and you, you should probably have him on your podcast if you ever get the opportunity to have him out here because he has a lot of interesting uh I certainly will. Say. Barack, you are welcome, sir. <laughs> Just let me know if and when it happens. I would love to have you on. Um, but yeah, so he, we ended up at some point, we were together at high school um, and uh, our paths met again. We kept in touch all the time and uh, at some point we were working together at a telecommunications company. So I was running logistics projects there and he was uh, responsible for customer retention and he was getting really good results at the time. You know, the cellular market, this was, uh, it was very competitive at the time and he was getting good results and he was, you know, on the route to promotion and, and everything. And uh, one day I mean, he was reading some books and stuff. I think Rich Dad was probably one of the ones among them. And uh, and he, in one go, he dropped it all and he upped with his wife and went to China. Damn. And uh, started a business there. That's all in. 
Uh, oh yeah, totally. That's totally. That's total commitment. And and he spent a few years in Kleiner and brought up the business to, to a certain level. And I'll not say any more because if you ever have him on here, he'll he'll be telling you all that. Um, and after a few years, uh, he came back, and at this point, he was starting to take an interest in the real estate and and started going into it seriously. And he'd uh, and he. From when he started with this, he was always talking to me about this and, you know, telling me, oh, yeah, you have to go and read this book, Rich Dad. And, uh, and I was all, you know, a bit antagonistic about it, you know, <laughs> what do you mean, Rich Dad boy? So you're saying my dad's a poor dad and, you know, we're, we're doing okay. We're middle class. They're, they've got a home and the mortgage is paid off. And, uh, I'm a fine upstanding citizen. I'm caring for a look. I'm paying taxes. Yeah. I'm caring for my family. What do you want from me? Yeah. yeah I think that was pretty much it. Yeah. yeah and, um, and he he would keep nagging me, and he did get me to to read uh, Rich Dad in the end, uh, and you know, so that kind of you know opened my eyes a bit to the to the possibilities and and where else uh, you, know, you can make your money work for you in other ways. Um, and uh, at some point, he managed to convince me to to come out with him to the US. So he was doing a tour of a, f- a few cities where he was thinking of making new investments. One of them was Detroit, where he'd uh, you know, searched for someone who could. Show him around, and he'd uh, he'd come across you, and you were that's, charging that's some money when I to you, spend yeah. the day with us. Yeah. yeah, and so I tagged along uh, to Detroit. He didn't end up investing in Detroit; he put his money elsewhere. But uh, but I kind of had a thing for it, and uh, I think there's you no. Know, as a side note, I'm normally I think one of the big values I have in the back of my head is fairness and um, and fair opportunity. You know, like. I give my underwear fair opportunity in my drawer. You know, I put the, the ones out there, watch, I put them at the bottom so they'll have their fair chance. You know, so the ones are... That is funny. I like that, though, right? Right, why not, out. right? Um, <laughs> the fairness, I like it. And and another thing I have is an aversion to to fads and to and to uh, crowd uh, wisdom, yeah. whatever. So, so to me, if I see a crowd all going and doing something, to me, that's a sure signal, don't go and do that. Or it should at least make you go, hold on. Yeah. It should at least uh, give you pause, right? Popularity um, should make you pause. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm susceptible to it, right? I mean, everyone is. I, we're human beings, right? Uh, one thing I was really bad at um, is the whole guru thing. I, that is completely defeated in me now. There's no amount of guru ness that will get me. But for a short period of time, wow. Talk about falling, falling in a hole and not stopping till the end, right? Uh, that is the problem with being a human being. Sometimes is we do things without thinking about them. Yeah, and maybe there's more for the last section of the podcast. But you know, all these books on the self-help and build a million and all, all that kind of stuff. You know, I, I for a long time I didn't read any of those books at all because of the the fad thing in them. You know, saying yeah. It's not that easy. You can't read a book and get rich, obviously. And at some point, I started, you know, wising up, and I'd, I'd pick up these books and, you know, read through them. I would never jealously follow what they said, uh, but in probably in each book, I would pick up on one or two points, which I said, okay, I think that's going to work for me. I'm going to adopt that, and I'm going to start doing it. Um, so it's bits and pieces. So if you ask me for a specific recommendation of a book later, I'm, I'm not going to be able to give you a specific recommendation. <laughs> That's but okay. I do recommend, you know, read through a lot of things and pick out what works for you because there is no one size fits all in this. Every person works differently, reacts differently, and you can't pretend to say, I know, t- take the writing thing. Yeah. I mean, you, you were talking about this in, in your, your last podcast with Steve Londo, which I just happened to listen to on my way over here. Um, 
and uh, and they say you know writing something down that helps it get into your into your mind for me at least yeah for me as well yeah but there are a bunch of people out there who it's not effective you know yes. for them they might just need to scan something over and they have this photographic memory thing and, and that's it it's in I wish uh, I be. would love to be able to load software like that just oh, read yeah. it once the matrix yeah. going I'm gonna see that's why I love this podcast because we get to skip around everywhere going back to when you joined the military and you were elitist all the time and it took a lot, we're using the word elitist in a, maybe a non-American way. Um, high achiever, um, intelligent, smart. I don't know. There's a better way to say it. I'm just trying to think that's not very American way to say it. But anyway, I joined the Navy and was accosted on two fronts. The dumbest people I had ever met in my life. Like people, I don't, you know, the recruiters took the test for them. They can't read or write. They couldn't read or write their name. I didn't even know such a thing existed, right? And then the other side, the smartest people I have ever met in my life. And to your point, one of them, his name was Dirk, could read it once and remember it forever. They actually went through, because I went through the Naval Nuclear Power Program, and these are tests so hard. You're talking about 5,000 points. 5,000 points in a six-month program, and to to pass, you need to get 3,500 of them, right? And this is the top, 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 top 1% of the nation, right? Dirk missed 21. Hmm. Wow. 21. They actually went they, they went through and rewrote the, the, the tests <laughs> after that. I wish I could load software like that. Unfortunately, I do have to write it down. I do have to listen to it multiple times. And that is unfortunately what works for me, but yeah. it does work. It is effective. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I discovered that this works for me in high school because I, if I was a bit, you know, less than confident coming up to an exam, I would prepare a cheat sheet and I'd, you know, put the formulas on it and, and some other things and like hide it away in my sleeve or, or something like that. And then what I found is that I never needed that cheat sheet. You wrote it down. Yeah, because yeah. just the fact that I wrote it down 10 minutes before the exam and stuck it up my sleeve. I mean, one, maybe there's the confidence thing that you know it's there if you need it. So that helps your confidence. <laughs> but uh, but it, I found out, you know, having just written it, it was there. Yeah. And I, I found, you know, over the years, also if I, if I remind myself of something just as I'm going to bed, I will remember it in the morning. It's kind of uh, – it just helps me sometimes uh, know what i got to do when I get up. Yeah, that doesn't work as well for me. All right, so, so let's go back. So this dawning that – so you were – Get, go to good school, get a good job, pay your taxes, retirement. And then Barack just goes to China, starts a business, comes back. To it. So it's like it was a slow progression for you to like, well, maybe I should diversify. Was that was that what your thought process? Maybe I should diversify? Yeah, or? yeah that, that was exactly it. Uh, you know, it's saying, okay, well, you know, I'm, I started to learn a bit about the financial markets and how these pension schemes are run and, and everything. I mean, yeah, there's a good intention there. And for the most part, it's going to work out okay. And, and you have to be prepared for the fact that, you know, your pension isn't going to pay as much as your salary. But, uh, you know, if it's run well and responsibly, then it's okay. But still, you think, well, you know, I'd like to be doing a bit better. And maybe I'd like to be retiring a bit earlier or be able to work three days a week uh, in my day job or whatever you want to do. And, and this idea here of, okay, on the other hand, I don't want to be spending so much time on it that, I, that I'm working two jobs. I'm, you know, I'm past the point where I need to work two jobs. I did that when I was, you know, I didn't yet have. When you were uh, young, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, had that now, young now you're married, you're having kids. Uh, you know, you, you don't want to work two jobs, and uh, and real estate is something which, uh, yeah, you can pay someone a few percent uh, to to go and manage it for you, and you can be involved occasionally uh, when you need. 
Um, and hopefully in the end, it generates uh, some extra income. So actually, you know, just ahead of my time right now, but uh, I'm not yet at the point where I'm making a profit on these four houses that I own. So I, I borrowed money to buy these. And this, by the way, was another one of my resistance points with Barack. Uh, his family had, uh, had bought land in Israel early on. And when the country developed, uh, they were in a position, you know, they, they owned property. So Barack had, uh, he, he was living in an apartment in a building which was owned by his uh, grandmother. And, and he owned a second apartment in that building which was being rented out. Uh, so when he wanted to buy a home in Detroit, he had equity in this uh, apartment that he that he owned. And he used that to go and buy his first house. And he, he was getting an income from the rent that he could use also to, you know, to finance any cash flow issues that he had. And it was like, yeah, well... You got this house. You got these rich parents. Uh, you know, it's easy for you to say, "What have I got?" You know, I've, yeah. I've, I've got a mortgage on an apartment, and I'm making my salary, and uh, I can, you know, I can barely pay to go on holiday. Where am I going to get the money to rent from? You know, you're a different starting point. I, you can do that. I can't. And and it took a long time. Yeah, it's not to, a useful way to think, is it? Exactly. It took a long time yeah. to get to the point where I said, "Okay, well, there, are, you know, I can." put in a bit more effort here to find out how to to finance that first investment. And it took me, I think, from when I was over here and you showed us around Detroit and talked us through uh, everything, it took, I think, a year, over a year yeah. until I actually made the move and came to you and said, okay, I'm ready to buy. And uh, that buy was made with a partial investment uh, of my parents. So they, they made me a loan, which I uh, started repaying. And uh, and we'd sold... Um, We'd sold our apartment when we left Israel, and there was some cash left over from that. We had to pay off our mortgage, of course, first, yeah. uh, and that went also towards buying uh, this first house. Um, and yeah, may, I don't know. Maybe again, I'm jumping the gun, but afterwards, I, later, I bought three more houses, and that, that's probably later down the line. But there, I had to find you know creative ways to finance that as well. And so, most of these houses are, are, are being financed. So. The, there's no mortgage on the houses. It's personal loans that I've taken. And uh, up till now, all the income I've had from the houses has been going to pay back these loans. I haven't yet uh, got into a positive cash flow out of it. Yeah, I got some got to build some equity up. And just for the record, um, the English use of the word scheme doesn't have the negative connotation in England that it has in America. So when you hear scheme, think plan. It was something that used to mess me up when I was doing international calls and sales and all that scheme is not bad in England English. It's more like a uh, plan or program or something like that. Whereas scheme in America, I just wanted yeah. to, I didn't want to forget that because somebody might take that uh, the wrong way. So that's an interesting path. Uh, how many years do you think it took from start to finish before you really became comfortable with like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go hedge my bet. I'm going to go do something different. Cause I think a lot of people are sitting there because they, I think you obviously, you're not the only one, and I wasn't the only one. Like, well, I didn't have rich parents, so I didn't have a good job. I don't have a house I can take equity out of, or I can't go to China and start a business. And a lot of I can't, I can't, I can't. How long before? And and then if you can, maybe the the intimate details of that process too, if you can remember it. If not, that's fine. Well, I think much of it was from spending a lot of time in the so-called middle class but not feeling that you're middle class. So, you know, middle class, uh, the way it used to exist is that, you know, you were comfortable and you could afford things that that the working class couldn't. 
And now you're finding yourself classified as middle class. If you talk about your percentile in, in what, how much your income is compared to the thing that you're up in, I don't know, in the 20th percentile or something like that. Uh, yeah. Uh, you should be living comfortably. And yet you're not. You find yourself living every month, uh, you know, from, from hand to mouth and, uh, you're not managing to save and you're paying back your mortgage and, and, and the price index is going up. Your food is costing more. Your petrol gas is uh, costing more. Um, kids start growing up and you go to buy diapers and, and, uh, formula and then it's, uh, free supposedly education, but you're still paying for it, uh, hundreds of dollars a month. And, yeah. and you say, hang on, this, this isn't what I signed up for when I was going to be middle class. And, and so it was, you know, searching for a way to, to just get that one little bit ahead that, you know, that you don't have to count every dime, uh, every month. Cause that's the situation we were in in Israel and, uh, to a large extent in Holland, but but that was through our choice. So, you know, in Holland, we'd made the choice to put our kids in international school and uh, international school. And that was, you know, eating up what ordinarily would have been our spare income for, for toys and fun. Um, so these seven years in Holland, I was, you know, earning a very decent salary. Can't complain about it at all. We were able to go on holiday and, and visit Israel every year or two. And uh, I really can't complain. But it was still, we had to count every cent. We still had months, you know, where something comes up unexpected and all that. And suddenly you pass your card at the supermarket and, uh, and it comes up with an error. Yeah. The middle class isn't quite what it used to be. Is it? It's, um, I don't know. I felt squeezed and I saw it being squeezed too. I saw lots of people that that was the interesting thing about watching it occur slowly over time. I think it's a global, uh, phenomenon. So that pressure kind of made you wake up a little faster to like, well, yeah, I need to do something. Yep. That was it. Need to do something. Mm, and, interesting. Uh, yeah. And then of course, well, you know, there are so many different routes that you can take to generating a, a side income and it helps when, you know, people, you know, are already doing something, then you have, uh, you know, someone who can give you the tips and advice and put you in contact with the right people and, and things like that. So, you know, Barack had taken the initiative to come out and introduce me to you in Detroit. I, I don't know if I'd have taken the step myself to, to choose Detroit or any other city and start searching around for, for someone to make contact with. So, I mean, now I'm, I'm past that step, you know, so now I'm living in Cleveland. I'm starting to think, hey, maybe the next investments will be in the Cleveland area. For sure, right? And, and so I'm starting to take the steps or I haven't actually taken them because I've been more involved. But I'm already planning what do I need to do to try and connect with the right people in the Cleveland area so that when I'm ready to make my move, you know, I know where to go and what to do. That's a big change in mentality. Um, guess how many years between... When you were thinking the polar opposite to what you just said, how long, how long do you think it took? Cause that's, that's a very, you're now you're thinking years in advance. You're trying to project into the future real estate and business opportunities you might want to pursue. Oh, I've, I've always been thinking ahead. Uh, it's just, it's in a, it's thinking in a different direction now. Uh, that's all. That's a good way to put it. I like that. Yeah. It's thinking ahead, but you're just a different direction. How long do you think? It's, uh, it's a process of change that probably took about five years. Uh, yeah. 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 It's over time. And, and, you know, there's one thing that talking about the corporate world, uh, one thing that, you know, if you're, if you're working in the corporate world and you, and you, you know, you're showing promise and initiative and, and you're doing stuff and, you know, they look at you as being, you know, p- possible potential for moving ahead in the company and all that, you get training opportunities and personal development courses and leadership development courses. And, and these things are, you know, they have a similar effect to, to going out and avidly reading uh, these books and things. Uh, these are paid for by the company to, to help their workforce get better. 
And these have also helped me, you know, get to some important realizations that have helped me develop. I mean, now's a good time for me to, to be more clear on my uh, distaste for, for, for corporations. All right. So my only concern with people doing this is relying totally on the corporation to take care of them. I don't see how that's any different than relying totally on the government to take care of you. So I hope that clears it up. And I know plenty of people, um, Josh Sterling, um, Andrew Kuhn, uh, I'm sure I can go on if I go through my list too, who have built multi-million dollar real estate careers off of living well below their means working for a corporation. And without such, they wouldn't have been able to get their start. So just to clear it up, I don't want anybody to rely on any one thing because as we can just see, what happens, and I'm sure people can see what's going to happen too. The MCIs, all, all the bankruptcies, the and the people whose retirements uh, were bought out for a nickel on the dollar, and hard to make it on that. That that's my primary concern. So thank you for giving me an opportunity to clear that up because I don't want it taken like I shouldn't go get a job. No, it, get a job. Yeah, okay. you might need a job. You might need a job oh, for a yeah. long time. It might take you, but it took you five years and you're not, it's not like you have a good job. It's not like you're going to quit it. Right. Yeah. But you're not going to rely on it totally. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, especially moving to the U S has made this clear because in Holland, you know, they're very much about keeping jobs long-term and job security. And there I had a contract, which is uh, as a permanent employee, which basically means I'd have to do, I'd have to fuck up really badly <laughs> to get fired. And even when the company is, you know, cutting jobs across the board, uh, in Holland, they will, you know, go into negotiations with the union and, and it's always, you know, win-win negotiations. And I can remember the last time that the company cut 5% of the workforce, uh, in Holland, they, they went into the negotiations. They said, okay, well, all the employees who are on a temporary contact contract, which is ending in the next year and a half, when their contract ends, they, it won't be renewed and that will count as part of the 5%. And anyone who's due to retire in the coming two years, they will offer them early retirement and that will count as part of the 5%. And in the end, they only actually fired a handful of people. And in the US at the same time, in the same company, 5% of the workforce had the letter and were out of the office that day. Yeah. Um, and, it could be that quick. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, when I, when I signed on to, to work with the same company here in the US, uh, you know, they sent me the, the, the job offer and we had some negotiation around that. And, and my next question was, okay, where's the contract? And, and they said, oh, there's no contract. This is uh, our offer. Yeah. It's a, it's an at will employment. You know, as long as we want you, you're here. If we decide to fire you, you're gone. Uh, so yeah, they'll give some notice and, uh, you know, if, they're, they're reasonable, but they won't promise anything in writing. So it's absolutely clear to me right now, you know, I'm, I'm earning more here than I was in the Netherlands and that sometimes somehow makes up for the risk involved. But yeah, I could find myself without a job tomorrow and, and it's not just without a job because my visa here is dependent on my working with this company. Yeah, you can find yourself without um, a country pretty so quick, I would right? Have to, I would have to leave the yeah. US as well if uh, if that happens. So it's it's a risk out there, you know. And you know, I don't intend to to do anything that would result in me getting fired. But you know, financial results in in these times can be bad. And you know, it's enough that you know something out of your control goes wrong, and the the company runs at bad numbers, and uh, and you know, they could be firing people. And that's a good point. There, no matter what you choose, there is a lot out of your control, and it would make sense to to not put all your that's it's a fucking cliche, but all your eggs in one basket, right? It happens to be true too, right? Because um, that would be unfortunate. That's interesting. I like getting this perspective, um, especially from a European perspective on employment. I didn't realize you guys signed contracts and all that. Yeah, that shit does not exist here. 
Unless you're like all the way at the top or even in the union, you don't sign contracts. Your union representatives sign contracts. So it's very different. So in Europe, you actually personally signed a contract and then the company signed the contract and you both. Okay. Yeah, that's right. And that is in addition to to the collective employment agreement, which is signed by uh, by agreed by the union and the workers committee. Uh, which applies to all workers. Uh, so even if you know, if you're uh, a more junior worker, then you won't have a personal contract, uh, but the collective employment agreement will apply to you, which also takes care of you very well if you're a permanent employee. That's very interesting. So about five years. Well, okay, so five years figuring out maybe I need to, to do something. Um, how did you figure out what you were going to do? I mean, because that's kind of... A, Coming to the realization that maybe you don't want to bet everything on one thing is really different from deciding what to do after that, right? I mean, how did you decide what to do after that? Yeah, uh, to be honest, I hadn't really looked deeply into many other options. So, I mean, there's things like you know, stock uh, market and uh, and uh, web uh, tra- web based uh, trading of goods. You know, the, you, you can find. I think now it's becoming more of a trend. Uh, uh, where you can you know just buy something somewhere for cheap and sell it on the web. Uh, you know, I, I dabbled in a couple of experiments in that to see, okay, is there anything that can happen? And I think uh, there's what one thing I did just when, when we were, when we were living in Holland, a small venture I did, you know, just to try it out. Uh, I was in India on a business trip and you know, I came across a, a stall there which was selling these wooden beads. And you know, I'd seen uh, my wife buying beads in in Holland uh, to make uh, you know chains or bracelets or things like this, and they're selling them you know like between one and five euros for a little packet uh, of these beads. And here I'm buying a whole sack there in uh, in India for 150 rupees. I don't know that's three dollars for a whole sack. Oh wow! So okay, well margins could be big here. Yeah, <laughs> I, I took these things home and I, I bought some little baggies and, uh, and a small scale and counted them out and distributed them into the thing and put an ad up out on the eBay uh, and, and the local Dutch website and, and waited for the orders to come in and, and they didn't. I think I got two orders in. Uh, Oops. This. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and the difference here, I mean, it's quite clear to me or, you know, again, I didn't research it too deeply. It was just like an experiment to see what can happen uh, and if it does happen by itself or you have to actually have to put some work into it and um, yeah you, you're going to have to market it you're going to have to do something to you know there are hundreds of people or thousands uh, selling these wooden beads out there you've got to do something extra to make it uh make it your beads that they're buying and you know you're that's flipping like, beads yeah <laughs> totally yeah trying to flip beads from india i like that you tested it though you're like okay i'm gonna, I'm gonna test this and see how it goes i think that's a good idea i think that's a good approach to trying something new too is to as small as you can go in and test yeah. the concept before you actually commit yeah, to it. Yeah, the investment here so, was, yeah. you know, totally minimal. Uh, and uh, again, if I'd have decided to invest on the, at the time when I was doing that, I didn't have a thousand dollars to invest in marketing. And, and you know, when, when you're selling a bag like that for a dollar, you got to really be sure that your marketing uh, is going to work if, before you spend a thousand dollars on marketing. Uh, oh yeah. Like what point is dollar per bag a thousand dollars you have to sell a lot of damn beads right yep yeah so um so yeah, i never did really pursue that and then you know like going later if there were you know events at the school or uh, you know a couple of times a year in holland they have these you know sell everything you got uh days and, uh, and then we'd put these bags up there and maybe sell a few but you know, we've still got a load of baggies with uh, wooden beads <laughs> <at home>. uh, <laughs> all right kids you want to go on vacation you're selling beads <laughs> if anybody wants to buy some excellent beads 
Uh, go ahead and reach out to Jeremy at no, just kidding. no. The kids actually did this for for pocket money. You know, we spent the weekend uh, making chains, and then the, the kids uh, on these open days in Holland, the kids sold them, and they got to keep the money that they. Uh, Dude, they that's made awesome! Yeah. What a good idea. Did they have a good time doing it? Or yeah, yeah, it was uh, fun for all. Yeah. Hell yeah! Teach your kids how to sell, and they get to make some money selling. What was it specifically that drew you into real estate? Then I mean, because. If you didn't look at many options, there must have been something compelling about real estate that convinced you that it wasn't as necessary to to look at other options, right? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, the, the tangibility of it. I mean, the real estate aspect of it was, uh, you know, I'd been burnt in the past by the by the stock market when I tried investing there, not big time, but uh, I, what I did realize is that it, the stock market is totally out of your control, and. Uh, not just that, even if you analyze the stocks you're going to buy, the performance of that stock is not necessarily linked to the performance of that company or its that finances. Is, yeah, that's that's a really that's a real problem. People emotional reactions to market things. Yeah, and- buy, 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 and everyone's uh, and it suddenly goes up. Why did this stock go up? Uh, and then likewise, sell, 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 and the best companies they'll lose twenty percent stock share. You know, uh, share share price. Um, that, your, that happened to Richard Branson when he took uh, Virgin Public, um, and just it was, I can't remember exactly. I read his book, um, "Losing My Virginity," and he did. Name. I should have, yeah, I should have. Re- I hate when I do this. I'm just shooting off the cuff here, but something like he took it public, got a bunch of money, and stuff was happening beyond his control that actually didn't have anything to do with the company. It was driving his stock price down, and then the banks wanted to call in all the loans because they're driving the stock prices down, even though earnings and everything else hadn't really changed. And that's when he decided, yeah, yeah, the next year he took the company, he bought out the public, and he took it private again. So it's interesting that you would say that because that does happen. Just um, yeah, and you know, this is one of the things. Now I've been working with this company now for ten years, and I I never thought I'd spend so long working with the company. But on the other hand, I don't look on it as being ten years in the same place because I've I've done four different jobs in three different countries. So uh, yeah, it's it's been interesting. Um, It's it's a public company, and one of the things that will eventually probably be the reason that I will leave when if and when that happens is the fact that the strategies and the actions which are taken by a public company do not always align with the best interests of the company. So if the CEO actually owned the company himself, he would probably be acting differently. Yes. And and this is, you know, when I'm a professional in my field and, and we're sitting there in workshops which are supposed to basically drive our strategy, I mean, I'm involved in the supply chain world, so we're, we're you know, saying what we should be doing in supply chain, how things should happen and, and how should things should be set up. And, you know, we're making proposals out there and then you see they don't fly because uh, the stock market demands you to do to do otherwise. And, I'm, you know, I don't want to dwell too much on this. I'll just give a quick example just to uh, demonstrate what I mean. Uh we have to report out every quarter uh, our numbers and every, every month, every year. Uh, one of those numbers is how much inventory do you have? So inventory is reported once a month. And that means that on the days running up to that last day of the month when inventory is reported, everyone's doing head over heels to get those inventories down. And what it means is, you know, stuff is coming in from suppliers and it's waiting on the dock in the warehouse and they're not receiving it because the the boss who's bonus is dependent on meeting those targets is saying yeah. hey don't receive that until the first of the month don't <laughs> and meanwhile the production line might be running dry because they don't have goods to manufacture 
Yeah, that's not a good situation. This is yeah. a good example. So then, what's showing. happening? You're yeah. scrambling on the production line to to make up late production, and you ship it out late, and you got to pay more money to to expedite the freight to, to get it to the customer on time, and it's costing you a lot more money than what you saved by keeping that stuff out of stock for two days, or making a sale before the end of the month. And you know, if if I own the company, I really don't give a shit if the sale's made on the thirty first or on the first. And in the world of the corporate reporting out to public stock exchange, it does matter. I think I went over this a little bit when I was talking about last year when I was tracking too many things and too many numbers and focusing on the wrong numbers. Um, that could be a bad thing, and that's different than stocks, but that's a good example of paying attention to the wrong metric, right? For yeah, absolutely. For the wrong reasons, which is yep. because Wall Street demands it, basically. Yeah. And, you know, right? if, if I'm running the business, I'm not, I don't want to look at my stock on one day of the month. I want to know what my average stock is because that's what's costing me. If I'm looking at the, at the financial cost of holding inventory, and if your alternative uh, finance, financing cost is 10%, then any stock which is sitting there for 29 days of the month and then it's out of there on the 30th, it still costs you all that month. And you have to pay for the warehouse stuff and the storage space and, and the handling costs and everything for that month. So if I don't see it on the books at the end of the month, it still costs me. So if I'm not reporting it on the last day of the month because I did some financial wizardry to get it out of stock, I'm just fooling myself. Oh, yeah. And the market, right? Right, exactly. And right. um, so if it's up to me to define the KPIs, I would want to measure the inventory as an average. And then the response I get back is, well, no, then our, what we report out to the stock market at the end of the month will be higher inventory. Yeah, it's true. In the beginning, it will be. But when, but not forever. when your entire supply chain is geared to this loopy cycle of getting inventory down to the last day of the month and then the next day not caring, you're doing the wrong things. And if you could spend a year optimizing average inventory, you'd find that after that year, your total inventory level would be lower. Because people would start putting into place processes and systems and methods so that they could keep their inventory down all the time. And that would be benefiting the business throughout, not just on your inventory, but everywhere else. And this is the big battle. And, you know, where I've been arguing KPIs like this into place, and I don't think they're going to make it. No. No. There's to come a point when I'm saying, okay, there's too much of a conflict for me to take. I'm going to go and work in a private owned company. And that'll probably happen someday. And, but, I've become a lot more resilient over the years, not necessarily through working in this corporate public company world. Maybe a short story here about, I think I, I lost my job uh, when the dot-com bubble burst. I was working in IT and uh, after the bubble burst, I was still, you know, I kept in, in employment for another year or so doing uh, IT conversions for, for some mergers and acquisitions of our customers um, but in the end, I lost my job. There was a, the IT work dried up. I was customer support manager and uh, the customers weren't investing in any new systems and we brought them to a steady state with their existing setups and uh, uh, there were no new implementations. Worked yourself out of a job after the dot, the, the dot com bubble, right? I not worked myself out of a job. It's just it dried up. You know, yes, you know, uh, yeah, I was in a position maybe I could have fed errors in yeah. the system. Yeah, that, you I have not learned the way. Of, uh, wait a second. There's something else. Here. As, uh, business rules. No, I don't buy into that. You shit, were particularly yeah. efficient. And then, of course, that does come to an end, right? Um, yeah. So anyway, I lost my job. And, you know, so I was looking for something else. And actually, uh, this was an opportunity for me to move into the supply chain and logistics world. Because when I did my degree in industrial engineering, my intention was to go into the supply chain world. And, you know, with the dot-com boom at the time, it just so happened that my first job 
ended up to be an IT job and I got drawn into that world and the pay was good and it was interesting stuff as well. And maybe remind me in a couple of minutes when I'm done with this story to go back to that first job uh, that I got because uh, there's also some good stuff in there. Um, but anyway, I, I lost my job. Uh, and whilst I was looking for something else, I, I went off and worked for a, an advanced driving school. Um, and so I, I did a, a, an instructor's course uh, and started uh, working as an apprentice trainer. Cool. And um, you know, doing something, you know, I really enjoyed this and driving's always been my thing. And at the time, the owner of the school, he was trying to move to a new level of sales. He, he'd had a sales guy who was do, making the sales and the instructors who were doing the, the instruction. And he was trying to move to a new model uh, to get the instructors to make the sales as well. And he was putting us through an aggressive personal development uh, program, which part of it was, I want you to come back next week with X sales. Uh, or, or leads at least, uh, you know, at least three private uh, sales and one corporate thing um, and things like that to, to, to grow his market. And I think that was probably a wrong direction because, you know, me at least, uh, I can't speak for the other instructors there, but me, I, I wasn't in there for the sales. I was there for the driving and for instructing others to drive. Don't make me a salesman. And of course, you know, I'd, I was on forums at the time. I was I was running a cars forum, and uh, every opportunity I would be, you know, writing up and putting in a good word for this uh, for this company because you know I'd had a good experience with them. I'd done a course or two there, and uh, but but this is not aggressive sales. It's not trying to make someone make a call now and uh, and close something. It was about that's sowing the seeds, you know. So if someone's coming and searching on the forum and and wants to find a good school to go to, he's going to see my messages and he'll call the school. It's not going to be traced back to my name. He's not going to say Jeremy referred me. Um, but it, it's getting the name out there. And I wasn't into this make a call, make 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 a call now, make an appointment now. Uh, but aside from that, there was uh, the personal development thing, and he was encouraging us to to find one thing that we weren't happy with in our lives at that moment something that we wanted to change and uh and to work on that and be mindful of it and see what we can do about it and i, I was struggling to come up with something i said no i'm i'm pretty happy with how my life is and i got a i got a new kid and uh, we just bought uh, we renting a new house and uh, we bought some land to build on and uh I'm perfectly happy. I've got a car I like. and uh, i got a car I like. <laughs> That's such a man thing to say, but that does matter. If you have oh, a car yeah. you like, oh, yeah. it matters. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, for a couple of weeks, we were meeting, you know, once a week, and I didn't have anything. And then, you know, one evening at the end of the session, he, you know, after everyone had scattered, uh, we were talking a bit, and he took me aside and said, hey, Jeremy, i I got one for you. Think about this and uh, go home with it and see. And he said, you know, lighten up. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, well, what do you mean lighten up? He said, I won't say any more than that. Go home, think about it. And um, so I did. I went home and thought about it. I had, I had no clue what he was talking about. Uh, but then a few days later, it's uh, it's bedtime. My daughter must have been, I don't know, a year and a half old or something like that at the time, uh, or maybe less than a year or whatever. And I'm reading her a book, a good night story. And, uh, and as I opened the book on the first page and start to read it, she said, no, I want to read from the back and turned the book over and opened it on the last page. <laughs> I said, no, you can't do that. You've got to start reading from the front. And boom. Then it hit me. Ah, lighten up. Yep. And so whoosh, made the switch, said, okay, I get it. Read the book from the back. 
That was nice of him to do that for you. How many people would just let you keep doing that, right? And not say anything. Yeah, I mean, you know, th- this guy's a real coaching type uh, as well. I mean, I, was, I still hold him in, uh, in very high respect and esteem. And b- by the way, you know, I was uh, just to continue to see, to see this through. I mean, at the, at the time, I was still looking for a job in supply chain and, uh, and you know, I was getting offers or looking things up. Uh, but at the same time, he offered me to stay on in his company. And, uh, you know, to progress along to being, uh, you know, uh, a major role in the company. Um, I was, I thought about that really hard, you know, because it's like, hey, there's an opportunity to work in what my hobby is, you know, it's to do that every day. And uh, on the other hand, I've spent four years studying for a certain profession, which is, you know, something that I do like and I do enjoy. Uh, Do I just throw all that away to go and work uh, in driving in cars? And I was pretty torn there. And uh, in the end, I made the decision not to do that. Um, I think I'm happy that I did because, you know, now I'm, I'm doing my, my day job and I can look forward to those weekends where I go and indulge in my hobby, get out in the car and drive and, uh, and things like that. Um, I think, you know, the pleasure of that might have been diminished a bit if I, if I'd have been doing that every day. Yeah. There's a danger sometimes in turning your hobby into work, but I don't know how dangerous that really is, but I, I think it can be dangerous. I've ruined some things by working too hard on hobbies. I'll tell you that I've had to. I know exactly what he means by lighten up. If you would have met me when I was 21, uh, my my best friend Jason could tell you, and the people who knew me back then, I lightened up a lot. I there was one way, and that was the way, and that's just not me anymore. But I was that a, a fundamentalist in everything. Turn the lights off when you leave the room. Really, like not healthy at all. So probably way more than your little your start from the front of the book. It was. Probably it was more of a problem with me. I, I really had to change that, so I kind of have some idea what that's like. I'm, I'm still very often, I'm still very often heavy. Yeah. Uh, but I have, uh, you know, on the work side and the professional side, I definitely have lightened up because in, you know, ten years ago, or no, it's, it's fifteen, fourteen years ago. We're talking about already, but fifteen years ago, in in I wouldn't be able to take situations like that at work. You know, I'd resign over it, and uh, and and now I can accept the fact that you know there are things that are out of my control, and I can decide if I'm willing to live with it or not. If it's important enough for me to make a deal over or not, and so I try to be in positions where I can still remain in control. And this, by the way, was one of the reasons I was looking to move from my previous job in Holland. I was working there on a huge scale project, uh, kind of one that you know the leaders of this program they were. Uh, you know, saying, Hey guys, you're never going to work on a project of this scale again in your life. It's something amazing for your resume. It's, you know, it's big, it's huge, it's amazing. It's going to turn around the company. And it is, it's a huge project. And, and, you know, if this project ever succeeds, it's going to be awesome. And, but when I looked at what my position in this project is, I was thinking, you know, five years ahead, if this project turns out to be a raging success, how much of it will I be able to say was actually my work? Not very much. Mm. And beyond that, the project was so huge that I couldn't eat from my position. I couldn't easily reach the decision makers or even be aware of what decisions are being made. So I didn't have the influence I want to have on something that I'm working on. And that was one of the reasons for looking for the new position. And the one I picked up now is one where, uh, where I have a, a bigger role in a smaller organization, a smaller project which means I have a lot more influence on what the outcome is going to be. And, uh, and when we have successes, I'm going to be able to say, hey, a lot of that was me. So that makes me a lot more satisfied in, in doing what I'm doing. Well, yeah, when you're thinking like that too, real estate makes perfect sense, right? Because you can 
apply a lot. You can't control everything. That's right. But you can apply a lot of control to a real estate situation that you couldn't do to a stock yes. or a bond or other similar yeah, investments. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> you were saying it. I was like, this makes perfect sense now why yeah. he, he, he likes real estate because, yeah, you want to maximize your impact, maximize your control because the more control you can exert, the greater influence you can have on the outcome. If yeah. you feel confident, you can have a positive outcome, right? So yeah. if, you, if you're someone who doesn't think you can do it, then that's probably not for you. But that's interesting. Okay, that makes a lot more sense now why you would um, – I didn't think about it exactly that way, but it makes – you made a good argument for why why somebody might – who wanted to exert that kind of control might prefer real estate over other yeah. – Types of investments. And you're asking that question has also, I think, helped me clarify it for myself a bit as well and understand yeah. the reasons behind it. That's it's interesting. Good to talk about these. So you actually there. even picked a job just so you can have a greater um, influence and control within the same company. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's, interesting. That, that's okay. one of the good things we're working in these big multinationals. I mean, we have 120,000 employees. And there's always something going on. There's always change happening somewhere. Um, and there's always opportunities going on. And, you know, I'm always keeping my eye open on the opportunities in, in the domains that I'm interested in and, uh, and you know, making sure to be in touch with people who I think might be connected to something that, uh, that could be of interest. Um, do me a favor, say inventory again. <laughs> I'm just trying to help him out. I forgot to come back to it. Say inventory again. Inventory. Uh, inventory, right? Inventory. And yeah. So, uh, inventory. I'm used to it. I, I grew up. I got to try and remember sometimes that not everybody has. I actually know two Englishes <laughs> the English, English, and the American, actually three English, English, American English. And then as my wife continues to correct my grammar, the longer I live in Detroit, Detroit English, unfortunately. <laughs> I got to work on that as I get better. You did ask me though to remind you about that first company you worked at. I think it was was that the IT company you were talking um, about. This was even before the IT job okay. that I lost. Yeah. yeah, this this was a startup. So I was in third year at the end of my third year at uh, university. I was looking, you know, for student jobs at the time. Much of what I was doing, I was you know doing private lessons in math and physics for for high school kids and stuff like that. Um, and I found a job in the evenings, which was with a startup in the field of medical devices. They were doing a machine that would uh, analyze urine samples and identify if there were any bacteria there and which uh, antibiotic you needed to treat the, uh, to treat that bacteria. It was automating what used to be manual processes, you know, people in a lab with microscopes and petri plates and, and all that. So it basically used these very small petri plates and a very short incubation period and then uh, automate uh, computerized imaging to identify what happened in those plates um, and you know trying it out with different uh, antibiotics and they had a bunch of uh, test uh, stands where they were running clinical experiments uh, to check you know measure the performance of the system and calibrate it and they needed people just to sit and operate these uh, these machines in the evenings and so I was doing that for, uh, for two or three months. And, uh, and at some point they started ramping up to production and, uh, and they'd hired an operations manager. And so when he was, you know, when I learned that he was around, I, I came and introduced myself to him. I said, Hey, um, I've, I've heard you're the new operations manager. I'm, uh, I'm just you know, starting my fourth year in uh, industrial engineering. And, you know, if there's anything you have here, any jobs here in operations, uh, I'd definitely be interested in, uh, having a shot. And a couple of weeks later, he calls me over and sits me in front of a computer and says, Hi, Jeremy, this is our, our uh, barn server. 
Ban is a, an enterprise requirements planning software, so software packages that run the whole business. Uh, and you are now its manager. <laughs> um, Here you go. Yeah, so, so this, was, you know, this was an opportunity to build up the entire uh, information systems, the operational information systems of a company from scratch. And, and it became a lot more than building the IT system. It also became, I was actually the right-hand man of the operations manager. Because we had to build up production, we had to build up a warehouse, we had to outsource uh, the manufacturing of components and, and all these things. So I was helping him through all this. Uh, and it was an amazing opportunity because you get to see how uh, a factory, a business really runs from start to finish. How you transfer something from design to production. I, mean, I had a lovely opportunity there. We had R&D engineers designing the system. And the system has a similar complexity to a car. And the designers, imagine... That's a, complex. That's a, the most complex thing besides satellites and space, cars. Yeah, pretty much. That's it. I mean, and by that, the way, this is something that constantly amazes me, is that cars are, are these, you know, very complex devices. I mean, there are a number of things that amaze me in this industry. The one is that they can make these machines at such a, an affordable price. And the second is the level of amazing reliability they get to. I mean, you have all these headlines about recalls and all that, but shit, man. These machines are amazingly reliable, and the especially fact that they can just from one twenty of those, years ago. I mean, come yeah. on, it, it's like Star Trek shit now, it's amazing right? Amazing stuff. It's amazing. Just, anyway, so so imagine now that you've got a designer who designs the braking system. Yeah, so he's got a drawing of the braking system, and he's got there the the brake pedal, and that connects up somewhere to the brake booster, and that brake booster connects up to a hydraulic system, which builds up the pressure and spreads it out to the discs, and then you've got the discs which are mounted there. So so he has an, an engineering drawing which describes the braking system. But now when you want to start manufacturing that car, you can't have someone assemble that braking system on one line and then fit it into the car. It yeah, no, it doesn't work like way at all. Because yeah. uh, the calipers, you have to fit on the hub. And the brake lines, you have to fit on the chassis. And the pedal, you have to fit into the passenger cage. And the booster, you have to put on the firewall. Um, and that's pretty much what it was with this medical system. We had, we had a vacuum system in there, and there was an air pressure system in there, and there was a hydraulic system in there, and there were drawings for each of them. And the bill of materials was built up in such a way that if you were going to manufacture by it and plan your production and, uh, and inventory by it, you would have to uh, build up a hydraulic system, build up a vacuum system, build up an air pressure system, and then put them together. It didn't work that way. So, so one of the first projects that I picked up there was to take this engineering bill of materials and transform it into a production bill of materials where you could actually make an assembly. So you'd have some piece of metal somewhere and you'd have on it a hydraulic component here and a vacuum component over there and an air pressure component over there. And, they, and that had to be fit on the chassis. And afterwards, you had to add on the hoses and pipes and connectors that connected it up to other sub-assemblies. So it was rebuilding the whole bill of materials with a production point of view. You know, that's... I don't know how many people get to do that as, you know, one of the first things that they get to do out of uh, university, but it was, it was brilliant. And you know, the two and a half years or so that I worked in, in that role were, were just, you know, way better than university in what I learned there and what I could actually apply. Oh, yeah, that's, that's where the real metal meets the meat, right? Because totally. one thing to draw it, go build it, go manufacture it. That's real tough. Yeah, man, that's, I didn't realize you did that. That's really cool. What a great opportunity. Yeah. No, and in the end, the company never managed to make any sales. Uh, Most don't, uh, right? The money yeah. ran out. And, you know, this is actually one of the interesting things from the startup world. Uh, and also the call is all the startup nation because it has uh, the, the highest proportion of startups uh, per capita in the world. And, uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, uh, I think it's second only to Silicon Valley in the in its, uh, you know, what hotbed of, uh, of talent and development it is. 
there's lots of venture capitals going out there. Lots of big multinationals have R&D centers in Israel. Uh, it's huge. Um, but an interesting thing also about these startups is that, you know, you've probably read it somewhere that nine out of 10 startups fail. But in the course of failing, they spend a year or two or three using somebody else's money to pay a bunch of people pretty good salaries for, for a period and to get experience and, and, you know, do shit. Um, you know, even if you never actually got a product out there in the end, that, that rich, uh, guy who funded it, has actually done good with his uh, with his deep pockets. You know, well, he's, he's lost the money in the end. But, but he's learned a lesson too, right? A lot of the most successful people have killed a lot of money and then come back. Yeah, and, he's invested in yeah. 10 startups like that, and, yeah. uh, and one of them made him 10 times more than he lost in all the others. That's startup math. That's exactly how it works. Right? Yeah. He's probably more like he invested in 30 startups and two or three made it, and he made all his money back plus way more, right? Because yeah. that yeah. is the start. That's exactly. how hard a startup is. When exactly. you're successful... Yeah. You really make it. So these are the, you know, these, these are the positive sides of capitalism. And, you know, I mean, you think all these startups fail. Isn't that a waste of time and investment and money? No, it's not. There's a lot of good that comes out of it. I Even noticed. It's just keeping people employed. Yeah. So there is, I'm going to say correlation. I've noticed a correlation between people who think everybody should get a participation trophy. They really don't like competition or failing they just don't like it at all. The, 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 I think a lot of people are trying to manufacture a world in which there's no competition, which I can see that. Like, I don't want to kill somebody to take their food from them, right? I, I kind of I get a glimpse of it, but they're really ignoring all the benefits from and because of competition and failure. They just want to pretend like it it doesn't exist. And you brought up an excellent point here that every failure is an opportunity as well. If you're paying attention, right? Because yeah, it if is. you're learning from it, yeah, that is how. How else do you learn? It's to me, it's like I want you to learn math, but no fucking failing. You fail once in math, you failed. That seems like I'm like, wait, hold on here. What, what are we doing here? But that was an that was an excellent point. I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about this. If you don't, because I don't know, but I'm gonna throw it out there because I had to do it with my wife. Um, did you have to sell your wife or convince your wife or, or what did that look like when you're like, okay, I know I've got this engineering job. We're safe. I got these signed agreements. You know what I want to do? I want to borrow money. I want to take our money. And then I want to talk to my parents and your parents and our friends. And I want to go do things with this money. And yeah, I have to pay it back even if it works or not. Let's go do, I mean, it can be difficult to not all the time. I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. If you feel comfortable talking about it, go ahead. If not, we'll just, we'll just pass on and, and we'll go from there. So yeah, she's been more doubtful than me from the start. Um, I think at the point where we actually made the investment, she agreed that, you know, we do need to be doing something to try and you know, improve our long-term situation. Um, but we have had recently discussions. I mean, now two months ago, one of my tenants stopped paying. Uh, and we, we didn't actually get to an eviction. She'd got, a, you know, an attorney's letter and she actually left the house and walked out, uh, before we actually got to the eviction without notifying my property manager or anything. And, uh, and now sucks. it's winter, utilities all got turned off, pipes froze. Luckily they're plastic, so no damage, uh, in there. Um, it could have been real bad, right? If that was copper or galvanized, that could have been oh, a yeah, bad yeah. situation. Yeah, that would have cost me. Yeah. And I had a situation like that. We probably get to that when we, yep. but, um, 
Yeah, bottom line is, you know, uh, I, I still have to reach a situation where I've got four houses all bringing me an income. And I thought that this month would be the month when I'm going to have four houses. And then this thing happened and, yeah. and she left the house a mess. So this house, I'd, I'd refurbished it a year and a half ago or something like that. It was, uh, I bought it off the Wayne County auction uh, for about 10,000 bucks. Uh, the house is, it's half of a, 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 what do you call it, a duplex? Yeah, half a duplex, yeah. Um, and it's not worth much in the market, but the investment, uh, when I bought it, I only had to put about five or 6,000 extra dollars in it. So for $16,000, I had a house up there getting $650 a month or, uh, in rent. So, I mean, that's a fantastic return on investment put on its own. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but now she's out and I've got to repair, I've got to paint all the walls, I've got to change all the, the blinds and I've got to repair the kitchen and I've got to repair the bathroom and I've got to put new carpets in uh, and a bunch of stuff. It's going to cost me, you know, $4,000, uh, which were not expected. Luckily, the tax man has been kind to me this year. So, uh, <laughs> the tax you know, man, as, yeah. As they of, give you some of your money back? Yeah. As, as of two days ago, I was still... Two days ago, I was with, with the, my own personal bank in the morning to see if I could get financing, uh, when, of course, he couldn't promise me anything because I don't have any credit history. Um, and, and then, you know, then uh, the tax man, you know, my CPA, got back to me, uh, you, know, you know, and Brian, uh, yep. he pointed me out his way. Um, That's a yes. good guy. That's a good guy. Brian's oh, yeah. a good guy. He knows his shit too, man. Yeah, totally. So, so yeah, I'm going to be getting returns which will more than cover this repair and, you know, leave me with a bit more to go out and have a nice meal to celebrate. Uh, so, yeah, that's the sexy part of uh, being a landlord, huh? <laughs> Evictions, they don't tell you. It still amazes me. Actually, I'm not going to get into it. All right, I'm going yeah, anyway, to leave that alone. The, the bottom line yeah. is this, you know, every time we, it looks like we've finally got four houses up, something else happens. And anyway, so I was having this discussion with my wife just a couple of days ago, you know, why don't we just sell this? I'm saying, you know, well, this house, you know, the amount of equity I've got in it and, and the potential I have in it is if I sell it now, I'm not going to get its market value. You know, no. I can sell it tomorrow to an investor and I'll, I'll be losing money on it. And, you know, I've still got these loans to pay back. I can't afford to sell a house at a loss, especially not when it's still generating income. And, you know, we have to make it work and we can make it work because, you know, it, the market's on its way up. Yeah, you know, I wasn't when I bought these houses. I wasn't expecting to sell any of them for a, for a quick uh, buck on the, on a good flip or something. That wasn't the intention. The intention was to hold on to them. I didn't think it would be quite so hard to get to a positive cash flow. Uh, so it has been proven more difficult. And yeah, there's, there's a question. Okay, do we just you know do I sell them all now one by one and pay back the thing? And and to me that doesn't make sense because then I'm back to where I was three years ago. That's a step back, right? Now a step forward. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, one of the things that we do learn in all these business development, leadership development courses is to, to, to know when to stop doing something. Dude. And you, you get this in business, you know, you have the company investing in a That's major project stuff, yeah. and you see it's not working out. And so, you know, do you keep on, you know, trying to whip a dead horse? Uh, at what time do you stop? But the, the way, you know, what my side of the argument is, hey, th this isn't a dead horse. These are houses. So even though I've just had a screw up with one of them and another one I've just, I mean, just before I came over here, I was inspecting a house where the rehab has just finished. This was a house that I also bought in, in the Wayne County auction two years ago. And, uh, uh, it was unexpected that the house was in this condition. But again, we'll get to this when we talk yeah. about the investment, which we're coming up on. Yeah. So, so only now managed to get it finished. Uh, so hopefully within a couple of weeks, there's going to be a tenant in there. And then when this other house uh, with eviction is up, uh, I do expect that within a month, I'm going to have four houses bringing an income. Uh, finally. Finally. I mean, that'll be a real reason for celebration where, where we finally get there. 
That's pretty good, especially you're, you're you're not from America. I mean, you're you were buying houses in America before you even lived in America. Um, why Detroit? You could have picked any city, really, right? Yeah, so, I think you did at some point in time, but I mean, yeah, there's there's a thing of uh, there's a number of elements here. I mean, one is that that fairness thing, you know, wanting to help the underdog kind of thing, so back the underdog. I think that's also British thing in a way as well. Uh, yeah, you know, and if and and part of that, you know, growing up in a in a social country and you know, being of uh, you know these more socialist things that you know you want to be able to help to prop up those who. Uh, who aren't quite there. And uh, so that's the one thing. It's, you know, being part of rebuilding. And I really liked the, I don't know, call it Wild West atmosphere of Detroit, that it's like, you know, things are happening now. And, and again, there's still a big areas of Detroit where things aren't happening. Yeah. But it's uh, completely different even from when you started, right? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I haven't spent enough time in the city. You know, the things I've been listening to your podcast, and now, you know, I want to come with the family and bring them for a, for a long weekend in Detroit. And, and now I've got all kinds of ideas about what to do. So, you know, one thing is I, I'd like to plan that for a time when we can go to a Detroit soup evening. Instead of going to a restaurant somewhere, go over to Detroit soup. Have you will love listening. Detroit soup. Let me know if you yeah. do that. I mean, obviously I go, but uh, we'll have a good time. You'll like totally. that. Totally. And, and I'd love the kids also to have an yep. opportunity to sit on this and cast their own vote about, uh, um, about you know, which project they think should get their money. And it's not going to be $5 because, you know, if I'd have taken the family out to a nice restaurant, we'd end up with a bill of 100 bucks or something. So I'm happy to put in the kitty there 100 bucks as well uh, and you know, make it go to a good cause. And the uh, Detroit Bus uh, Corporation, uh, which... Uh, yeah, Andy Diderosi, yeah. that's a fun guy. I like him. Yeah, and you know, yeah. that that's also something where you can enjoy. You get a tour, see something that you wouldn't in your general uh, tour guide tours. And uh, and at the same time, that's also funding good for someone else. And uh, so I'm, I'm gathering up a list of things that are worth doing in uh, in Detroit. And, you know, it's... Uh, Lots of them. Lots of hopefully them. Hopefully that also help give my wife a good feeling about, you know, there are good things happening here. It's a good place to be. Um, the other big element is saying, well, you know, when I started investing, the market here was su- in such a bad situation and so low down that you say, no, it can't go down more from here. And even if it does, what's the worst that I've lost? It's the amount of money that I can make up if I spend one year going frugal and, and saving up, you know, yeah. so I'll, I'll make up the difference. It's low buy-in, low yeah. buy-in. It's not right? something that's going to drive me into the ground. It's not something that's going to make me broke. It's not something that's going to have to make me drive a $1,000 beater instead of a new lease car. Um, and even if it is, you know, I, I can drive a $1,000 beater as long as my wife has a nice car, which yeah. isn't going to break down. <laughs> I did two years without a car. You can even go without a car and save money. It's makes your life miserable in america but in america, yeah you can do it, it i mean over here where, where you're living yeah you could get around on a bicycle uh, yeah. or whatever maybe not in the winter but uh i yeah uh, people do it in the winter though i wouldn't yeah get, yeah but no where we are out in the suburbs doom uh, yeah. yeah without a car without two cars in in the case of our family it, it just wouldn't work and this is another thing which i'm finding very difficult you know in in a town in holland the streets are i don't know 50 yards apart so the lots are 25 yards deep, uh, probably typically. And so when you look at a map and you see the streets and, and you see you've got 10 streets there, you can, you know, make an estimate and say, okay, roughly that's, you know, that's probably about less than a mile to get from here to here. And here I'm looking at the map to see where I need to go. And I'm looking, okay, 10 streets. Yeah. And I'm thinking a mile. Uh, and then I find out it's actually seven miles yeah. uh, because here you've got uh, 200 yards between streets. Wait till you go to California and you see a California block. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the blocks are different everywhere. When you were evaluating, sitting in the Netherlands, like, okay, scheming, right? Making plans, going, okay, I need to 
need to hedge my bet. I need to make some in future investments. I need to figure out where to do this. Uh, what did your evaluation process look like? I mean, I obviously I know you actually physically came here, but I'm sure you didn't. I mean, did you just come to Detroit because Barack was coming to Detroit? Or I mean, what did you read? How did you evaluate? And more importantly, after you went back and you took that year, year and a half, how did you actually finally come to the decision? I'm, I'm asking this because people come to Renegade Detroit Investors all the time, and I don't do it anymore, and I doubt I will ever again, probably, to buy, fix, rent, and flip model to international and out-of-state investors. I get these questions all the time. So I think this is a useful look at the psychology of an international investor. So how they can market, all that. So I think this is important to people. I'm like, okay, what, what can I offer to these people that they would find valuable and make their decision easier? Well, as a thinking, analyzing person, I would find it very hard to invest in a market where I hadn't actually been uh, and seen for myself. And when I was in Detroit, I didn't just see what you showed us. You look at everything. Barack and I also drove at random throughout and, and we saw the worst bits and we saw the nice bits and everything in between. You get a feel for it. You know, you spend a few hours driving around the place, you get a feel for it. Um, so we saw that there's a lot of terrible stuff there. Um, but I think that I would not have been capable of going and investing in a place where I hadn't been. So, you know, the other potential places to invest, let's say, I don't know, in, in Florida or, or wherever, uh, I, I couldn't have invested without going there. Now, putting uh, here, another constraint was playing that at the time, I couldn't afford to fly myself out to the U S again. Mm. Interesting. Um, okay. I simply couldn't afford it. So it was either at this point, it was either make a decision to invest in Detroit, given what I know and who I know there, uh, or don't do it. So make the best decision you can with the limited information yeah. and, and resources you have to make, right? Yeah. And then it's a yes or a no. And I think one of the most important elements here, and here I'm going to make again, an analogy to cars I can remember, you know, I've always been, you know, in amongst car loving guys and I, I've known people who, when they took their car into the garage, they would sit there the whole day if necessary <laughs> within sight of the car. And anytime someone was working on the car, they'd be peering up there and looking at them and, 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 you know, just making sure their baby is okay. And I never bought into that. To me, what was important was finding a place where I can take the car that I trust the guy I've given the car to enough that I can go and do my own stuff and not wait and look over them. And I had two or three garages like that where I knew I could put my car, I could trust them with my eyes closed that they would... Uh, my, is, that a, is that a word you use yeah, in American? Yeah, yeah uh, absolutely. It's not just a direct translation from Hebrew? Yeah, no. Um, trust with your eyes? No, yeah, that's fine. And, and I think that's I mean, part of the reason I was willing to invest here is after meeting you and spending the day with you and, and what kind of things you're doing and the things you're involved in it, it, that developed enough trust in me that I could, okay, that I could make an investment with your support and help. And I know you're making a profit out of this, maybe more than I would like to give you, but I, I don't have the opportunity now to go and look for someone else who I might be able to trust more. Um, so it was a window of opportunity that I had to take or not take. I, d I don't think I had an alternative at the time to invest in Detroit with the support of someone else or to invest in another town. Um, that's an interesting so, perspective. Um, I like how you thought it through. It's like, okay, I don't have enough money to go check something else out. So am I going to do this or not? So you made yourself make a decision. Yeah. What you did. Yeah. Okay. Pretty much. 
It's been interesting to see what you would have done if you'd said no. Would you? Do you think you would have picked another um, another city to go and invest in, or I'd have probably kept the idea there and kept it on the back burner. And when an opportunity came, I would have looked into it. So mm. you know, part of my job doing international travel, I, I got to go to the U.S. Uh, here and there a couple of times. And most of the times I came to Detroit was when I was visiting the, our plant in Cleveland. Uh, and then I'd just get into a car and drive over to Detroit and, and I'd meet my property manager or the, or the attorney or whoever it was I needed to meet at the time um, and, and go back. And if I hadn't made the investment here, I'd have probably taken the opportunities of those visits in Cleveland. I'd have, you know, planned a flight going via somewhere and, uh, and, and you know, found someone to meet with over there and show me around and, and maybe opened up other opportunities. That's what I probably would have done. I like that. I like I like your decision making process. I think it's easy for a lot of people not to make a decision sometimes, right? To to bump up. Well, I don't have enough resources, or I don't have. I I really want to do these ten things, or but you kind so you just kind of forced yourself to make a decision, yes or no, rather than just not making a decision. Yeah, I mean, again, for, for a year I wasn't making a decision, yeah. but, but you had to get there somehow, right? <laughs> yeah. What did that look like when you were not making a decision? I mean, do you remember what you were thinking or? If you don't, that's fine. I'm just, I, I, it's hard to remember too, because it was like, what, five, six years ago, five years ago, four, four, I think. Uh, No, I can't recall anything specific. It was just, you know, it's, is it, is it procrastinating? I don't know. It might've been. You tell me. It was. Yeah. I mean, a little bit of procrastination. Yeah. And you know, there's nothing urgent. It's not like, you know, the floor's opening up below you or anything you know things are going on as they should you're managing okay it's not something that you have to do otherwise you're you're gonna Mm. so there's no you know burning platform sense of urgency do you remember specifically what finally made you say i'm going to do it i honestly i don't okay that's fine i don't know if it was was a a long trigger but but it was a long process it was cooking in there for a while yeah, it does take it does take a while. Do you remember? See, this is a little tricky because I don't want the sound. Do you remember specifically what it was about at the time what I was doing that persuaded you one way or another? Well, for for one, you were you were not just uh, trying to sell the good; you were also presenting the bad. So you were showing the flip side of it as well and making it clear what the risk is and, and where the potential problems are. But also at the same time, you know, I'm going to do the best to, to make sure you're on the positive side of things. You know, being in, in the right neighborhoods, you know, you can be two blocks away and, and you've got a house that isn't worth a thousand dollars and yeah. there are scammers out there. And, uh, so you gave me enough information that I could know that you're not, uh, that, that you're not scamming me or something like that. Um, there's and, a lot of that too, still. Oh yeah, even I've, today. I've been hearing these stories. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, this lady um, talking to a lady right now from Hawaii, who's originally from Australia, and taking a look at her properties on Monday, and there's just no nicer way. But she got totally butt fucked, just bad. And I bet it's going to be even worse when I walk through, because usually when you're screwed, you're not just screwed on the houses, you're screwed on the rehab too. That's the downside that the, the screwing doesn't stop. If they're screwing you in the neighborhood and they're screwing you on the house and they're screwing you on the price, they're very likely not exactly either a not doing the rehab not delivering on it, yeah. or they're doing a really piss poor rehab. So I'm kind of afraid of when I walk in, um, what that's going to look like on Monday. That's going to be, that's going to be interesting. There's a lot of that, unfortunately. That's interesting. Yeah. So 
after you bought the first house, because <laughs> this is something I really admired you about. You're like, I bought a Detroit house. And at some point, Jeremy was like, fuck it. I'm going to buy from the Wayne County auction site on the scene. Right. Cause I want to go through this too. Cause I remember I was like, man, I like this guy. Like this is, I this really sounds bad. It's like, he's got some cojones. He's got some balls, right? Cause the buying at the Wayne County tax auction. And so what I'm talking about folks in, the, in Michigan is a tax deed state, not a tax lien state. What that means is if you don't pay your property taxes after three years, and in some cases one year, if you've already bought from the tax auction and you don't pay your taxes, they'll take it back the next year, but three years for everything else. They actually foreclose on your house and then they auction it off. Um, they used to be something in person and I did one of the, the second, the last one in person. That's where we're down in Greek town and you actually are there and you wait all day for the house to come up and they eventually switch it online, but you, you don't really get an opportunity to go inspect the house unless it's already open. And that's generally a really bad thing. <laughs> so any house you can get access to, usually that's a bad thing. So you're, you're bidding on houses, it, on houses that you have not been on the inside of most of the time. Uh, and you really don't know anything about, maybe it's occupied, maybe it's not, but you're also bidding on houses where, uh, I know it seems strange, but Wayne County actually doesn't foreclose correctly. That's why you get a quit claim deed instead of a warranty deed. So potentially, depending on on the title, if you ever want the quiet title, there's stuff. Yeah, there's these unknowns that you don't know. Now, it's not usually a huge problem, but it is a risk, right? So you went from, okay, I bought from an established, relatively reliable company, at least at the time, (laughs) uh, to I'm going to go buy Wayne County Tax Auction properties uh if you wouldn't mind yes. describing that process because this is very interesting to me i was like really you're like okay i really like this guy after that that's when i was like man i really like jeremy yeah, so, so, thank you yeah <laughs> so the way the way things went down were like this so so the house i bought from you was a land contract and it was run by a property management company i forget the name right now with the bernie was yeah. running it and uh, things were going okay. Everything was pretty good. But then Bernie had some heart stroke or something. I uh, don't know what it was exactly. That was terrible. Uh, it was right when the lawsuit started too. Bernie was in the middle of transferring from one property management software to another. And he was the only one who had access to the bank accounts or the passwords. And he had a stroke. Couldn't speak. Couldn't walk. That was some bad fucking luck anyway. So, so yeah, so I'm stuck now yeah. 5,000 miles away with the property who I can't, you know, even his employees uh, didn't, couldn't help me. You know, they were trying to be friendly and helpful, but, you know, they couldn't help me at all. And Screwed, I'm like, okay, totally. I don't have a property manager. Jeremy, you weren't, I'd, I think I'd spoken to you and it was clear you weren't in any position that you could really I help was in me. A, I was in a terrible spot, yeah. yeah. And, you know, at this time, my wife was, oh, he's, he's, you know, you're calling him and he's not answering the phone. He's, uh, I think you've been screwed over. And I'm like, no, I haven't been screwed over. It's an unfortunate turn of events. Very. We, we can work through it. But anyway, so in one of, so I, I needed another property manager. I couldn't fly out to find someone. And, you know, I can, you can start, you know, running up internet yellow pages and start calling people, but you don't know who you got and what you're getting. And at some point, one of, Bernie's employees in an email sort of copied an email back to me and to a couple more investors uh, where she was, you know, like acknowledging the problem and apologizing for not being able to help or something like that. But now at least I had the emails of a few more investors. And so we started communicating between us 
And, uh, and, uh, you know, I, uh, we were asking, like, you know, does anyone have a, a name of a property manager? And, and so someone plugged out a name there. And, and so I made contact with her and, uh, and she took over the property management and, uh, it started out quite okay. Um, and, uh, then at some point she started trying to interest me in getting more properties. Um, and I, had a business trip to Cleveland and I came out to Detroit and she showed me through properties and she hadn't done her homework very well. She was showing me properties which were pretty crappy or they'd been empty for a very long time and needed too much work. Uh, um, she, she hadn't got it together. It, it, was, it was clear to me 100% that I wasn't going to buy from her. But she had um, one of the houses was shown by another agent uh, called Sandra Gibson, uh, who's now my property manager. And, uh, and she afterwards, you know, started sending me her mailings, uh, on, uh, and she, she was trying to, uh, promote land contract uh, deals. So she is also active voluntarily, uh, tr- uh, coaching, uh, and helping people to get educated about owning their own homes. And, and on the other side, she was doing a business to help these people get into homes by, and by finding investors. Great idea too, at least before everything changed. Land contract. That was one of the ways I stabilized my stock in Detroit is taking it from a rental position to an ownership position. And if you don't think ownership matters, yeah, you're not in the real world. Ownership matters a lot. So I just want to interject there. Please continue. Yeah. So, so and also when, when you see someone who's actually working to improve the whole market they're in, then, you know, that, that's a lot more positive than just someone who's in there to, to make a quick buck. Uh, so that was positive. And, you know, so we started being in, in contact and, uh, and then she got me interested in the, in the county auctions and said, Hey, here's an opportunity. If you're looking to invest, then, uh, you might want to look into this. So you know, I started reading up about it and finding out how it works. And there's the first round where the beginning bid is, uh, is at the amount of taxes owed and whatever's not sold in the first round goes to the second round where it's starting at $500. And, uh, and pretty much it seems uh, she, she was recommending to go for the first round where, you know, if, if it's a house that you think it's a good one in a good area and all that, and it's probably worth the taxes, uh, you're going to pay on it. Um, you're going to be up against a lot more competition in the second round and the good houses are probably going the first. So anyway, you, you look into it and she'd, uh, work through the neighborhoods to, to point me to the houses which are worth looking at out of the ones that were on offer there. And we narrowed it down to a, to a short list. And, uh, then I, uh, I paid for someone to do a drive by of all these houses. So to make sure that the street is a solid one, that it's not got too many boarded up houses, the house itself, that the roof is okay, it's intact, it's not, you know, too tattered. And they took and pictures, right? You didn't yeah, just yeah. trust their word. Yeah, for yeah, it. yeah, got pictures yeah. of each one. Yeah. And so that kind of was a confirmation, okay, this one we can bid for, this one we can bid for, that one don't. This one was is just an empty piece of land, there wasn't even a house there. Uh, oh um, boy, that would have broke your heart, yeah. right? I would, that happens so many times. Look, it's on Google Earth. Yeah, that was a three-year-old picture. <laughs> There's no house there. Yep, totally. <laughs> By the way, if you're looking on Google Earth, uh, I found a way that you can find out when the photos are from, although although you don't know if the if the age changes. If you go on one of the main streets where you've got billboards up and you've got ads for cars, and you see what model year they're advertising on the billboard, you know when the, yeah. when the Google Street View was all taken. All right, all right. That doesn't mean that it was taken the same year in the next block, but... Uh, Probably, it might though. Be a good yeah, it's a good yeah, indication. They're probably covering the area in the same time. Yeah. So you had a systematic way that you were kind of going through and determining what to bid Thing on. Is, what not. This wasn't enough. No. Apparently, as I found out, so because I kind of assumed that of these three houses, I'm probably going to have to spend a small amount of money to get two of them livable in, and a large amount of money for the other. That was my working assumption, and what I'd budgeted for and taken into account. 
Um, in retrospect, what I should have done is paid that person more to actually stop the car, get out, walk around the house and look in the windows. Because what happened after I'd put the bids on three houses and I won three houses in the first round, each of them in the ballpark of about $10,000. Uh, I was the only bidder for all three, all brick houses, uh, from the period when they built them like they should. Um, yeah. One of them's the duplex. One of them is a single family, uh, four bed, uh, two bath in, uh, just north of, uh, Sherwood Forest, a very nice area. Very nice house too. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and another one is, uh, is a small house on a slab, uh, also in a good place. Nearby That's the school. one I helped you with, right? That That's the one, one you helped yeah. me with. Yeah. yeah. We'll get yeah. to that too. Yeah. Um, so, and, and then once we got into the houses, it turned out, and this is why I should have had someone look in the windows. It turned out that one house, the, the nice one, uh, near Sherwood Forest, uh, the previous owners who'd been evicted had, uh, emptied out the house. So first of all, anything of value, uh, you know, the kitchen sink, the pipe work, the furnace, uh, anything metal, uh, they'd pulled out of there. And just despite it, they'd gone and smashed up all the drywall and everything. So basically this was now a, a big house, basement, two stories and everything, which needed a full rehab. Huge rehab by Detroit yep. standards, right? I mean, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and another house, turned out had had uh, a major water leak and so water before before the city had turned off the water supply water had been flowing over the entire house and basically all the wood and cabinets and everything were totally rotted through and water was soaked up the drywall right up right up to the ceiling damn and that's also a total basically and uh, that one had to be stripped down to the core and uh, and redone from scratch all the way down to the studs for that one right yeah yep. and um, this one yeah we had fun about uh, yeah a year ago <laughs> I, I found myself also with an opportunity to come to detroit yep. on the side of a business trip and uh, so i gave you a call and another friend of mine uh, emmy um to you know if you want to come and help me out to uh, rip this house up and I, i've bought in a container and yeah, spent a full day just pulling down all the drywall and pulling up the carpets and uh, just basically tearing it down to nothing but a frame. And yeah, this is the house I just went to inspect a couple of hours ago, which all is right, now so it's uh, ready. finished rehab. It's Excellent. got everything in except the appliances and the carpets. Uh, so they're waiting for, uh, um, I think that, yeah, I'm wondering now whether to take it to section eight or not. Uh, my PM, she's suggesting to go section eight i had a i was burnt a bit by section eight in memphis uh pros and that's cons another story pros and oh, cons. Yeah. oh yeah yeah um anyway also one of the things uh she's actually sick now so i i met with her husband uh um one of the things uh i kind of had a flashback to one of your talks about uh, i can't remember who it was um it was saying you, you want your houses nice to attract nice people as well. Yeah. And so I, I kind of had an idea as I was going through, through and they're saying, hey, well, we're not going to put the carpets in until after we've shown the house and, and all this. And I said, hey, well, here's one. When you find you're vetting all the tenants, when you find the tenants that, that are interested in the house and you say, hey, these are the good tenants, offer them to choose the color of the carpet. That's a good idea. Small thing, but put it in the carpet they want. That, that Probably helps them get a sense of ownership and, you know, they're going to feel more, you know, more likely to look after the house. I don't think it'll hurt anyway, right? I don't it see it It definitely hurting. won't hurt. And it might benefit. It won't cost more. No. Uh, worth doing. Yeah, that's a good idea. I like that. Yeah. Interesting and, to see how that works out. 
Yeah, you know, if it makes a difference. I mean, you know, the bathrooms in there are not, they're, they're still old. The original tiles and everything, it's, you know, it's not something I would want to shower in, but, uh, you know, they're, they're solid. And, but one of them, the, you know, the decor, decor strip at the top of the tiles was broken off in the part. And, you know, he was telling me that they couldn't find tiles of the same color to match it up. Uh, and they were wondering, you know, what to do. And I said, well, you know, the ones which are good, pull them off as well and put in there something modern. You know, just a little strip of, uh, you know, modern type color, add in a bit of color there. It, just, it won't cost any more. And it just maybe adds that little touch which makes it feel a bit nicer, you know. So, yeah, small things you can do. And this is the type of thing, you know, when you're not there doing the rehab, when you can't come by the house it's every week and see yeah. what's going on, you can't really influence that. So, I mean... That was Jesse Boyd, too, by the way. I think yes, it was Jesse it. Boyd. Yeah, yeah he, right. um, Josh Sterling also, who I'm going to have on the podcast here in a couple of weeks, um, he subscribes the same theory. Buy a nice house, rehab it nicely, do everything that to attract... You want to attract nice people and good people. You need yeah. you need to do it in a way to attract them, right? Yeah, now I've, I've been in constraint that... I, you know, I didn't have the money to rehab these houses. So, you know, these two houses were sitting there for, for a year. Uh, and soon I'll tell you also why I couldn't invest in them earlier because the house I bought from you, uh, went rogue at some It went point. sideways too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I was in a situation where I really had to get these rehabs done cheap. You know, I couldn't put good stuff in there and, uh, you know, there's only so much you want to invest. You don't want to put more in the house than what it's worth. Yeah, he's in Redford, which is a completely different animal than than Detroit, but yeah, it's still not a terrible policy. So you know, if uh, if I had the ability, I don't, I don't know if I, if I'd have had a couple of thousand dollars more to spend on each of these houses, would I have actually said, "Hey, let's make it a bit more high end and not put in the cheapest uh, blinds"? Or I don't know what. I'm, I'm not sure. Sherwood Forest one, maybe. I mean that one. Yeah, that one will probably pay off. Even the other two, yeah, I mean, don't do even, much. Even with all the money I had to put into it, after investing it, in it, it, I probably didn't spend more than the house was worth. And since then, the house has appreciated in value as well. I, I don't know if I could sell it for that today, but uh, but it has appreciated. So it wasn't a bad investment in terms of return on investment. It's not doing as well as the as the half of a duplex, which I put $16,000 in to get a return of 650 a month. Yeah. That's a return on investment that you can't beat. It's interesting. Um, it's interesting getting this perspective from you. How long did, man, you, you had challenges though, cause you don't have credit here in America. So it, yeah, that I'm finding out now. I mean, the, the yeah. funding I got was all private funding. So, you know, when I was, when I really needed money at some point I was saying, well, you know, I have to pay tax on these houses every year. Uh, I need to pay for the grass cutting and the snow clearing and, and, you know, I need to get, uh, you know, all kinds of, all expenses running around paying property management for these houses, even though there's no one in there, it's costing me, it's adding up, you know, um, I, I had to do something to get the, to raise the funds to, to rehab them. I just walked into my bank in Holland and said, you know, can you lend me money? And, and there, you know, when you've got a fixed contract with a well-known company, uh, which is solid and well-known in that country, uh, they say, yeah, sure. You can have money. Unsecured, <laughs> um, Here you go. Yeah. yeah. Have some money. So I got a line of credit there, which was enough to, to rehab the house and, uh, and some more. I actually cheated a bit and took some money to get a newer car back, uh, back home. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it wasn't all actually gone into the, uh, houses. Um, but yeah, they, they gave me that money. I mean, actually, strictly speaking, um, I wasn't supposed to leave Holland without returning it, but, uh, 
right now I have to keep money going into my account there in Holland to, uh, to pay back this monthly. Payment. I don't think they're going to listen to this podcast. I um, think you're okay. <laughs> but w- one of the things I've been trying to do is to see if I can refinance in some ways, get a, either a personal loan or a equity loan against uh, the houses I own here to, at a lower interest rate to, to pay off that loan over there. I'm paying 9% there on a personal loan, which is a lot more than I'd like to pay. Yeah, that's expensive. Um, but not, not, not no, so expensive. Compared to you, private lenders, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. yeah. That's, uh, for the opportunity, the opportunity is greater than 9%. But yeah, if yeah. you can refinance cheaper, why wouldn't you, right? Exactly. But yeah. here is where I'm coming up against a wall. So uh, you know, there, there's a lot of, about this because, yeah, what I found is uh, that moving here, even though I'm working in a good company and I've been working there for 10 years and I've got a decent income and all that – no one will give me anything. Welcome to America, my friend. You need credit history before we'll lend yep. to you. So, yeah, they you know, they run up the numbers. They get an empty report and they say, sorry, no. Or put down a deposit. I mean, I had to, had to pay a 250 deposit just to get the electricity joined to my rental house yep. in my name. I'm, that I don't understand. You know, I haven't paid my electricity bill. Cut me off. <laughs> Simple as that. But no, they wanted a deposit. Uh, yeah. To get my first credit cards, I could only get secured credit cards. So a multi-billion dollar financial institution who I go to and say, hey, can you lend me $500? They actually have, they have the nerve to come to me and say, oh, you give me $500 and then I'll agree to let you have it back. Whoa. <laughs> and they'll call it credit history too. I, I don't understand that. It's not credit at all, right? But uh Give us everything we would lend you and we'll give it to you, right? That's banking right. in America. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, now, I'm now playing the game. I'm taking it in you know, a bit of humor. A friend of mine also moved to the U.S. a couple of, year, a couple of months before me and we're kind of, you know, playing, you know, giving each other tips on how we can best play the system and uh, we're both competing to get our credit scores up uh, you know, high enough to buy a $300,000 house on finance in, in a year or however long it'll take. The podcast I do did with um, Dave Sullivan. I think it's getloanready.com where he kind of is that helping at all? Or? Yeah, I went into his yeah. uh, website as well and I read up uh, his stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. that was definitely help. Yeah. He's a good guy. Yeah. He really knows a lot of stuff too. And mm-hmm. he's funny. He wants to destroy the credit repair industry. That's actually all. That's the entire reason he does <laughs> that. He puts all this effort in just to destroy the credit repair industry, which I love. That's yeah. Just, and you, know, you can really do it yourself. And, you know, every time I've been in some financial institution with, you know, some trying to look into some finance things, uh, you know, they'll, you know, it ends up with shaking their heads. I'm sorry, we can't do anything for you. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to go to the places where I can actually talk to someone because, you know, when you go into the online system and all that, it's just, you know, point blank ex- excluded. Uh, so I'm trying to get to places where I can talk to people, you know, like uh, I know the, a credit union locally there. And so you can talk to someone and, uh, the thing is, you know, I, I got to the point where I'm asking someone or I'm going up the ranks and I'm saying, okay, well, do you have the authority to, to give me credit? Uh, and they're saying yes. And okay, well, now that I've shown you this and I've shown you that and I've shown you my payslip and my employment history and all that, are you willing to, to give me that credit? No. So uh, the system says this guy has no credit history and no one is willing to override that. No one is willing to put his ass on the line to override that credit, no matter how, you know, that they might have a talk with me and be 100% convinced that I'm good for that credit. And I'm they not won't do get it. it. No, I can also tell you from personal experience, having fallen so far and come back up, you're, you're kind of experiencing the difficulty of breaking that gap. And I, I don't know if that's a bad thing or not, but it's real. It's a, it's a wall. It's a credit wall. And it'd be interesting to see how fast you break through it. Right. Cause you're, obviously a methodical 
person. It yeah. sounds like you have a plan. Like I'm just going to well, keep chipping away at this thing until it two, gives. Two, week, two weeks yeah. ago, I got approved for my first unsecured credit card. American Express uh, uh, gave me $8,000 credit. There you go. Um, thing is, I, I was rejected 10 times. So right now I have 10 hard checks yeah. in my credit score, which are there for two years. Um, I'm, I'm looking now into seeing maybe as something I can do to dispute this with the companies and ask them, Hey, cut this down. But that, that was a strategic mistake. So if, if there's anyone listening here who also needs to build up a credit history in the U S don't make so many pings as yeah, I did, you be know, careful. you see you failed, wait three or four weeks, then do your next try, wait three or four weeks, then do your next try. Cause yeah. And, and start with those secured cards. Because those secured cards, they do build up your credit history. Even though it's just small credit, you have the opportunity to pay your bills on time. I do want to point out that it's two fifty. I think you have to leave at three, right? Is that when you have to leave? Wow, it's that late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. It, it's going. Yeah, so time flies. <laughs> it does. So we, we, I think we have less than ten minutes to to wrap it up. I, I want to be respectful of your time, and I know you have to. Um, okay. Go on appointment. By the way, I'm supposed to ask you if, if you want to go out to eat or you want to get together tonight too. Gina wanted to ask. I don't know what's on your. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, plan. it just means I'll be getting home later. I mean, even if I leave when I was planning to leave, I won't be home before 10, so okay. everyone will be well, asleep already. Well, so, let me know. Yeah, what do you, sure. because we're running out of time here, What you have some notes prepared too, especially about the Detroit stuff and Memphis too, because you didn't just invest in Detroit, you invested. I, I bought a house in Memphis. Yeah. So Barack, we were talking about him. He'd, uh, he, one of the markets that he also diversified into was Memphis. And so I said, you know, diversifying is a good idea and he connected me up with someone there uh, and and I ended up buying a house there which went into the section eight um, I had one tenant leave and another one come in so the house was empty for a couple of months and it froze last year even in Memphis and I had to repair pipes That's some bad luck and, uh, <laughs> yeah and uh, man you then, learned all the landlord lessons oh, didn't yeah, you? Yeah. But, and then I had this uh, section eight who was actually not living in the house and she just kept it she wanted to keep up the rights and uh, the bad guys uh, figured out that no one was living in there and they went in and broke in and stole the water heater and the thing so it was costing me and uh, so yeah what do you do in this situation I don't you know I can snitch to section eight but then she still has possession of the house she can cause a lot more damage and I'm still you know with the uh, with the trauma of that house, which had been broken up inside, I uh, didn't want to antagonize anything. So it was kind of made an amiable, okay, you leave the house. I won't say anything and just let me get this house back. And so I ended up selling it. Uh, now, the thing is, I realized I was going to need cash moving here. So the company funded all the direct costs for the relocation. But still, there's a shitload of money that I need. I needed down payments on the car. Oh, yeah. I need down payments for the phone. Uh, for, you know, for, for the credit cards, um, I need to buy new electricity, all the electrical stuff I need new because everything in the, in Europe works on 220 volts. It's not going to work here. Uh, so I, I needed a lot of cash and I didn't have enough and selling the house just before I moved was, it really rescued me. And I, I don't know who the buyer was. I do strongly suspect, and I, at some point I need to talk with him about it. I do strongly suspect it was Barack who, uh, who actually bought the house via, really? um, via my agent. That'd be interesting if he did. I think, I think he did. I'm 99% sure it was him who bought it. And um, no, if he did, he's an angel. He rescued me. Because <laughs> if I hadn't had the cash from selling that house when we moved here, I'd have really been stuck. Because mm. I didn't realize how hard it was to get credit. I knew that you need credit scores and all that. I didn't think I wouldn't be able to get $5,000 of credit uh, as I moved in. It is interesting. This has been an overreaction in America from from just giving credit to everybody. And totally. then they kind of went to the other side to giving credit to nobody. And 
we're still trying to figure it out. And I think we have a long way to go. And you're just a victim of that too, especially not even because in America, if you don't have a credit score, you don't exist as you found out. Right. Yep. (laughs) 253. What else you got? Yeah, a quick one about your your house that went rogue. The one yeah, that from you. So there, it's, it's a, you know it's a land contract, and you know the the tenants they've already built up some equity in the house, and you expect they're going to do everything to stay in there. But yeah, they'd hit at some point they fell a couple of months behind on the rent, and then they caught up, and uh, and then again they fell two or three months behind, and you know I handled it with kid gloves and asked my property manager, who at this time was the new one I'd contacted. Uh, uh, and and he man and eventually the payment came in. And, uh, so, you know, when you see that money's coming in, even though it was three months later, okay, I can live with that. And then the third time I'd waited three months and it didn't come in. Yeah. Uh, and then my property manager started disappearing on me. Oh. And, uh, and so then I started getting, uh, you know, the attorney involved and they weren't responding on any threatening letters or anything. I couldn't contact the PM. I couldn't contact the tenants. And then I find out that there's a redemption period of three months from when the court ruling is given because they have equity in the house. So basically they were living in my house for free for nine months. Uh, until I had an eviction order, which was like mid-February, uh, freezing and ice outside and everything. And uh, and I didn't want to be in a situation where they, you know, once they know they're about to be evicted, and again, they cause damage, uh, again, traumatized from uh, that first house. And we paid a skip trace to, to you know, to yeah, get Yeah, did you find people. them? Yeah, yeah, they were found. Because um, I actually went to this house three times and because I, because you asked me to, mm-hmm. right? And yeah, you couldn't get, get any help I could, yeah. And no answer. It did look like somebody was still living there, but no answer, left notes, nothing. Cause you, I was trying to help you do a cash for keys situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately they just were not responding, which happens. I, and I want to say too, that when I was going through my shit, I'm not saying this in a bad way. There was like six months where I just completely turned off. It was so many bad phone calls, fuck you emails, eat shit and die that I did it too. So I'm not passing judgment. I'm just saying what actually happened. Mm. Right. And this is what happened. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know what happened with them or what the problem was that the, that for them, the highest priority wasn't making sure they'd kept the equity in the house, but skip trace found them. I offered them more cash to give the keys and get out. They did. Um, but they hadn't been maintaining the house. There were leaks in there. So a bunch of stuff was all rotted through and, uh, oh, man. and they left midwinter. So the pipes froze up, had to replace them all. They all cracked. At least now it's got pecs in there. So, yeah. Um, and so that was another shitload of money that I had to spend, which set back my uh, work on the rehab of the other houses uh, again. Um, You're a resilient man, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, things happen. Anyway, but so bottom line is, as soon as the keys, uh, the the my my new PM who was now managing the other three houses, uh, she's someone I'd like to point out here. Absolutely, because, uh, yeah, let's she, plug her. She's been let's managing her. these three houses, and uh, and she's. And from the moment that the tenants left that house, she picked it up and took that one under her ownership as well uh, and managed it. And really, she's also you know, one of those who you can trust to help you and do everything straight and, uh, and open. Uh, her name is uh, Sandra Reed Gibson, uh, landcontractdetroit at gmail.com. Uh, her office number is 313-338-3193. And if you wouldn't mind giving that to me, I will also put it in the show notes for people, yes, right? So they course. can see it in the show notes, right? Of course. Yep. So yeah, it's been very good uh, working with her, and even when you know we're remote, uh, I, I know I can trust her and the teams she works with to get things done. She also wholesales uh, 
apparently. So although I'm involved with him on the property management side, but yeah, um, he's been great help. Well, if you're, it seems like if you're trustworthy in one endeavor, you're probably trustworthy in other endeavors too. I found people who are not trustworthy just aren't trustworthy, no matter what they do. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. Um, another name I want to call out, and this isn't a bit of a side story here, but you know, in in my time traveling, I think yeah, there's a quick story in here. I had uh, a few years ago a colleague of mine at work, barely a few years older than me, just you know, one one night died. Jeez. And, you know, it's like, whoa. Uh, heart attack, uh, stroke? I, I think it was a heart attack or something. I mean, he wasn't the healthiest of people, but but still, it was a kind of a wake-up call and saying, hey, you know, five years from now, you might not be around. And that was kind of saying, you know, if, if there's something you want to do, do it. Uh, don't wait. And then, and then I started, like, opening up a bit to other things. And one of the things that I started doing more so than before was, like, hooking on a bit of private time to my business trips. Um, and, and there's really a win-win, you know, I've got a business trip somewhere from Monday to Friday. So I, I fly out on Friday, Friday afternoon and, and then I get some of Saturday and Sunday, uh, on my own time. And it works out cheaper for the company too, because if you're flying for a whole week, the air, air tickets are actually cheaper than if you're flying for five days, because they take advantage of the business travelers, uh, in the airlines. Um, and I just, you know, take time to travel and, and, you know, do n- not doing the guidebook things, but looking for more authentic things. And, and one of the ways I tried to do this was uh, through a website called Couchsurfing. I uh, don't know if you've heard of that, but it's basically uh, what I found from earlier travels is that usually the best experiences were ones that were unplanned. So you end up somewhere that you didn't plan to be and you meet someone and they end up taking you somewhere and it's like, wow, that was awesome. And I had, you know, people invite me into their homes, uh, and, you know, stay the night and, and show me around and all that. And, uh, and these are all, you know, chance encounters, which you only find at the bits when you're in unplanned parts of your thing or when something went wrong and you find yourself somewhere you didn't plan to be and, and you're improvising. Um, and what couchsurfing does is basically these type of people who are happy to meet a traveler and, and show him around and bring him into their homes. These people can go on the web there and say, Hey, I've got a free couch here. If you're in the area and you're traveling the area, I'll be happy to have you, have you over and, you know, spend some time, talk about, you talk about your world, I talk about mine and, uh, and I'll show you around. Yeah, that is awesome. And, and yeah, and I tried that out uh, a few times. I tried it out once in Singapore and another time in Kuala Lumpur where I managed to sort myself out with a 23 hour and 50 minute stopover between flights uh, or something. And I, I spent a day in Malaysia and I did that in Detroit as well when I came over to deal with the houses. And I went on there and found the profile of a guy who's, uh, who seemed quite interesting, also kind of into cars and all that. Uh, so his name is Emmy Jackson. Uh, he's an author, a writer as well. And he writes this series of uh, books called Empty Cradle. It's a post-apocalyptical uh, story about what happened in, in America after everything went really bad. Uh, and it focuses, uh, the, the heroes are riding the roads and the scavenging remains and uh, doing good and doing bad and uh, all kinds of things. So he's got two books out there. So you can look it up on Amazon, okay. em- Empty Cradle, Emmy Jackson. I will put this in the show notes um, as well. Yeah, there's a third book on the way. Uh, which I'm looking forward to. But anyway, so I've, I've been staying with him uh, most of the times I've been back to Detroit since then. And so also he's a friend at this time. I've helped him work on his cars and I uh, got my first opportunity to try and pull an engine of V8 out of a car and in again. Uh, uh, it's also been fun. Yeah. I remember that last time you came. I, w- I would point out too that um, I think one of your strengths is you're a good networker and you're good at building relationships too. And business has a lot to do with relationships, right? So 
I think that's one of the natural advantages you have. I don't know if it just comes naturally or you work I on have, it. But. I have a lot more to do in my networking abilities. For, for a long time, I didn't even look on it as uh, something, or it might have been something that I did unconsciously, but small scale. But uh, I, you know, seeing how others network, I do have a long way to go. I don't keep in contact enough. Uh, and I'm not doing enough to, to actively build networks. And I, this is one of the things that I have set myself to do, um, in the field of real estate in the Cleveland area and other endeavors, which, you know, I want to start taking interest in. Well, let's say if you weren't, I mean, you, I'm sure you could be better, but if you weren't good at networking, you wouldn't have got as far as you were right now. Cause how do you do this shit from four or 5,000 miles away? Right. You have to net. You're for, you were forced to network. In yeah, ways. Uh, yeah. I suppose so. Yeah. Yeah. How did you find the property manager? Yeah, yeah, the yeah. network, which yeah. that was terrible too, by the way. God, I remember that now. I was thinking about it more when all the shit was going down, and then how fucking unlucky can you get? And Bernie, by the way, he's a lot better now. Um, good, that's good. He sometimes know. can't remember. Sometimes he can. So he's come a long way. He can walk now. Um, but but yeah, I mean, th- to to have that, ha- there was literally hundreds of houses too. It was really a bad situation. So yeah. many people got, I mean, that was something when you talk about unknown risk, because this is what really changed my tune about risk too. I used to be way more optimistic about controlling risk than, than I am now that then, and I'm not trying to scare people, but there's just a lot more uncertainty than you're aware of. If you would have told me that at the worst possible time, the person who's holding the keys to so many people's success and quite frankly, your reputation could have a stroke right in the middle of transferring and how to have access. You want people to go crazy, not have access to bank accounts, not to be able yep. to have rent money. It was a bad, bad situation. And I just never, it never would have occurred to me that that would ever be possible. Yeah. This by the way is one of the other challenges in the corporate world. You know, there's very often a tendency of people to, you know, keep information to themselves and not share it to basically to put themselves in the position of I'm the guy that you have to have around. You can't find me. Um, so you can't find them and, and you're really and, you know, screwed. <laughs> and part, part of the things that I do in my job is trying to get the processes in place and the systems in place and, and, doc- and having it all documented in a way that it's repeatable. And, you know, what I always think is, you know, my, my test is if, if a process is right is could I step into there and do this right now with the documentation that you have available? And if I couldn't, then, uh, not ready. It's not, yeah, yeah. it's not good enough. That's a good point. Well, yeah. Cause you're in that whole supply chain. Yeah. Boy, that'd be really bad for a corporation too. I can only imagine. Oh, it's a lot of fun. Though. Look what it's, it did. Uh, look what it did to hundreds of people. Just, you, know, you, you buy something on Amazon or you're using some machine or something. And there's a whole supply chain behind that, which the, the end customer doesn't know about. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, that's, in the company I work for is, it's in the healthcare domain and, uh, and, you know, the, the inspiring message it sends out to, to its employees are, you know, we're taking care of the health and wellness of people and, and so on. And to be honest, that's not what drives me. Uh, I, I, I could be doing what I do for any field. Um, what interests me is to see a supply chain that's working effectively and efficiently and, uh, you know, trying to make it, uh, you know, to optimize that and, uh, and do it right. Uh, I could be doing that in any field. Yeah. You know, one day I'd like to be doing that in automotive and probably in, in a smaller company, not with the massive publicly not traded the big three. There are a bunch of, you know, specialist companies out there making small volume cars, which are typically quite expensive. Do you see they're going to make a thousand DeLoreans? 
I saw that. Yeah, yeah I just read that. Yeah. yeah, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Yeah, if if I could eventually, you know, be in a position where I'd be like supply chain director for a company like that, I think I think that would be where I'd like to be uh, sometime in the future. Well, it is three oh five. I think you have to leave. Hit the road. Yeah, you gotta hit the road. Um, is there? I know we talked about before the podcast. I don't know if you had time to think about it, but um, was there any opportunities you were, you were thinking about or if you want to put something out to everybody or, or reach out? I do have your email address here that I was going to put out for everybody, but um, now would be the time. I wish we had more time. That's okay. You come back next time. We'll do it again. Yeah, We'll cover because I have more questions. Yeah, a, I have way uh, more questions than we even got time to go through, and that's usually the case too. So we could always repeat it as well. Yeah, no, I think, you know, the, I'm not trying to sell anything to anyone right now, but I think one thing that I, I mentioned, you know, I want to start uh, building up a position in, in Cleveland, uh, looking at the opportunities there in real estate. And, uh, you know, if, if there's any other foreign investors li- uh, listening here, um, I might be a potential partner sometime down the road. Uh, you know, whether, you know, someone who can actually be in the market, who's had some experience, uh, knows now what to look for. And by the time I'm ready to do something, you know, I like, I like building up the groundwork to get to the point where I'm ready to step in. So when I'm ready to step in, uh, I'd be happy to look with some partners who want to work together. And I can tell you for a fact that 25% of the podcast listeners are non US based. Okay. Australia, New Zealand, Western Europe, um, Hong Kong, some parts of the Middle East. So yeah, they're, they're out there. They're listening. Well, Jeremy, I really appreciate your time. I know you got to run. Thank you very much. I had a great time. Um, ladies and gentlemen, Jeremy Cronin, you can reach out to him at jeremy.cronin at gmail.com. J E R E M Y period. C-R-O-N-I-N at gmail.com. And this will be in the show notes. Thank you for Jeremy for coming out today. I really appreciate your time. Um, go check them out guys. And if you enjoy this podcast and find it helpful, please share it, give it a like rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, all that. It's free podcast. All that really does help. And I really do appreciate it. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions, Maybe I'm not asking the right questions, or maybe there's a guest you'd like me to have on. Reach out and let me know. Go to renegadedetroit.com, renegadedetroit.com. If you're interested in the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. You can hit me up on Twitter at Jeremy Burgess or go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. And as I wrap up this podcast, you know what's coming. I want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. Yes, this is my secret anarchy message. If you can take care of yourself financially, you can do whatever else you want to. I know there are distractions, mistakes, poisonous people, bad habits. Hey, bad starts in life too, right? Pick a goal, stick with it, don't give up, do something every day that gets you closer, even if it's one step. Thank you very much for listening. I really do appreciate your attention. I know you can be doing lots of other things, and I really appreciate it. Until the next podcast, crush it.